All right. Welcome, welcome everyone to another episode of Muslim Point of View Podcast. We've got two guests in the house alongside with my co-host Abdullah Habib. We've got Anasuddin and Abu Jannah, aka Khudr Shami in the house. Really, really excited for this episode. We're going to be talking about a lot of different stories. But before we begin, let's get an inside scoop as to who our guests are. So let's start with Anas. If you can, just go ahead and just introduce yourself really quickly. And then we'll do the same with Khudur. Assalamualaikum. Uh, thanks, Nurandullah, for, for hosting us. Uh, glad to be here today. Uh, just a little, I guess, a little bit about myself. Um, as you guys know, my name is Anas. I've been born and raised in uh, Montreal, uh, grew up here, been part of the community ever since I could remember. Um, you know, alhamdulillah, I have that, I've had that opportunity. Uh, my grandfather came here in, in, in the early 60s or the mid 60s, uh, was also quite active when he came. So just, I guess it passed down. Um, I, I guess my initial foray into activism or within the community was probably in my teen years. Um, there was, uh, my, my, my house was seen as a place where like a lot of people would get together. So like I have you know a bunch of brothers, my older brother would bring people over, I would, and so would my younger brothers. So it became kind of like a community hangout amongst like, you know, within the West Island area. And we started to run a halakha. So my older brother with a few of his friends started to run a halakha. And that was kind of, I guess, my first foray into becoming a bit more active where they would start giving us responsibilities. Just what we used to call the junior halakha once upon a time. Uh, and then from there, I guess, I've had opportunities in different, uh, different areas through MSAs, uh, through halakas, um, and now more recently, for the last couple of years, we've been running like a weekend Sunday school through an organization called HILM. Um, and then the most recent is CYD, which is called the Canadian Youth Development Center, uh, which I am currently part of the board of. Um, very early stages, but the goal over here is to create a platform uh, and an institution that really focuses on youth development from a holistic uh, perspective. So I'll end off with that, and I'll pass it back to you, Noor. Awesome, awesome. Well, first off, thanks for that. That's uh, super well appreciated. Hold uh, on to you as well. A little bit about yourself. Uh, Bismillah. So my name is Khudr uh, Shami, also known as Abu Jannah. My daughter's name is Jannah, so that's the Kunya. Um, born and raised in Montreal as well. I wasn't as uh, practicing when I was much, much, much younger. Uh, kind of got into it around high school and really um, tried to make up for lost time and, and get as involved as I possibly could. Um, as you all know, high school Muslim uh, in the West, sometimes you kind of have this part life, right? Part-time Muslim kind of lifestyle. So that was not um, always the best. But then eventually, alhamdulillah, I found my place in it. Uh, got my bachelor's in education from Concordia, got my master's in education from McGill, really wanted to focus on the education system in Quebec and especially with Muslims. So worked with Muslim schools, then worked with public schools, then worked with private Christian schools, then felt like, you know, the West wasn't for me and my wife. So we left and went to Kuwait for a year and a half, lived there and then felt like I was wasting my time there because there was no community involvement that was even possible. Um, and then came back here in July 2023 and just hit the ground running, started doing everything we possibly could um, and really filling up our time with as much khair as possible while we still uh, are relevant to the youth. And alhamdulillah, man, as a result, we've been getting some good numbers. MashaAllah, we are uh, running a Friday halakha for the guys at Ansel Living Mosque, which historically has been kind of anti-youth halakha, but um, we're hitting about like between 150 and 200 guys every single week, mashallah, yeah. showing up. So it's uh, it's really booming, and we're hoping we're starting a lot more projects. Um, and alhamdulillah, man, it's it's been going good. Allah's blessed us a lot, and uh, a lot of guys have been supporting us in this project. A lot of sisters as well. 
So it's exciting. It's an exciting moment right now. We're kind of feeling that we're, we're on this high uh, and we want to kind of maintain that as much as possible to benefit as much people as possible. Amazing. Amazing. That's awesome. Zach for sharing with that. Um, so one thing that a lot of people might not know about you guys is both of you guys are also teachers, right? Um, professionally, if you want to say that <laughs> some, sometimes maybe not, but yeah. well, I'm, I'm, li I'm literally a teacher. So yes, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And then this as well. And this teaches as well, uh, quite for, <laughs> not, for many years, not a professional teacher by any means though. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about are probably going to be centered around education overall, uh, teaching, uh, not necessarily as a profession, but just the importance of, um, you know, teachers and maybe your experience as teachers or even people who are involved with the youth overall. Um, and just, you know, your different experiences and what you see certain trends. Um, so let's start off with the first story for today, which is as follows. So I'm going to share my screen, guys. We'll go over uh, the headline over here. So it says over here that the uh, there's a New Jersey dad who is suing a school over a daughter's secret gender transition. I know this is a heavy one to start with, but we think uh, we thought maybe we'd start by spicing it up. So a father is suing a Garden State school district after his daughter's gender tra transition was allegedly kept a secret from him. The father who's remaining anonymous to protect his daughter's identity found that the New Jersey's Delaware Valley Regional High School had been calling his daughter by a male name and male pronouns for at least two months after a pro-LGBT student club staff advisor who was not licensed to practice either medicine or psychology, according to the lawsuit, as teachers and other school staff, faculty, and administration to refer to the girl by a male name and male pronouns and not tell her father. Um, so, yeah, definitely a heavy topic. Um, <laughs> definitely wanted to start with this. But your guys' experience as not just fathers overall, but also having been involved in the school system. Um, so let me, let me tell you what um, yeah. I've worked in public schools here in Montreal and there was one school in particular, I'm just going to avoid names of schools and people sure. obviously for, yeah. for privacy reasons, confidentiality. But I, I worked in a school where uh, there was a boy uh, who was in grade three at the time. No, I was teaching him when he was in grade four. Okay. okay. And let's, let's just say his, grade four, what, what's, what's, what's the, grade four elementary? No primary, oh, primary wow. like 10 okay. years old. 10 years old yeah yeah oh, okay. so so g give me an example of a name that like if you add an a to it it becomes feminine uh, let's say let's say leo and leah all okay. right just for example yes. okay so let's say this kid's name is leo his actual name is leo and he's in grade two this is two years before i've met him at in grade two he decided that he wanted to become a girl and he wanted to be called leah and he told the school this and his mom was like yeah of course so the school had to kind of accommodate that and by grade three he was using the girls' bathroom, and he was being referred to as Leia by all the teachers and all the students. Um, and I came in when this kid is now in grade four, and everyone knows this but me. So I'm new to the school. I show up to this classroom, and and this clearly looks like a boy. This is a boy, bro. He's like a great. He's like a ten-year-old boy, and I don't know that I'm supposed to refer to him by anything else. And legally, his name is to Leo. So I'm going down the attendance sheet and then my uh, the teacher who was with me because she was kind of like introducing me to everything. She's like, just watch out when you say his name. It's actually Leia, not Leo. And I'm like, oh, that's weird. That's a weird name for a, for a boy. <laughs> and I got to him and I'm like, Leia? And he's like, yes. I'm like, what is happening? He's like forcing this girl voice because he wants everyone to refer to him as a girl. And I asked the school, I was like, what the hell is going on here? And she's like, yeah, so actually some parents complained last year that he was using the girl's bathroom. The, the father's of the girls in the school were saying, why is there a boy? 
in the bathroom with my girl. And the school's response was, the, ba- the girl's bathroom is for girls. All girls are welcome in the girl's bathroom, and Leah is a girl. But Leah is clearly not a girl. And this showed the most awkwardly when, when Leo would laugh. Because he's trying to put on this voice, but when it's spontaneous, like you would see him in class, or when he'd get mad, you know? He's a great, he's a 10-year-old. Yeah. So he's doing this project, and then he's like, yeah, that's what I think. Oh, it hurts! <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. This is so awkward. Yeah. And the, the mom is pushing it into his head, and the school is pushing it into his head, and everyone's like, yeah, yeah, Leo. You can, you can, whatever you want. 10 years old. Absolutely. How, how are the kids bonkers, around him right? reacting to this? By, so apparently got bullied a lot in grade three. Okay. But by the time I came into the picture, it had been normalized so much by the school and kind of pushed the, the, so much by the adults that the kids kind of just uh, like expected that everyone should treat him properly. Um, and I was expected to do the same, right? It was, it was my mandate as a teacher. So uh, I definitely see this father, this New Jersey father, I see where he's coming from. And I can only imagine that had you know leo not had the support of his mom mm-hmm. i don't know whether the school here in montreal would have reacted the same way but the fact that the mom was pushing for it kind of put the school in a position where it's like well we want to be politically correct all the teachers by the way in the teacher staff room understood that this made no sense they were way too young to make the decision even the teachers who were pro gender neutrality and you know all that uh, everything all the lgbtq rights they're fully down for that mm-hmm. they're still like eight and a half years old it's just too darn young for this kid to start making decisions like this and being treated as if this is the way to go. Do you, yeah. do you know, yeah, um, totally. was there, when, when he, when he, she, whatever, okay, decided that they wanted yeah. to switch genders, was there a gap between yeah. when the, the school was uh, aware and when the parents knew or was, did the parents bring it up? How did that work? So I know that the, the, the student had made the request and then the, the mother immediately supported that. And so there was no pushback from the school whatsoever. They just, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to react. And I put myself in the position of a school administrator, right? As a school administrator of a public school, you're government run and the government tells you, yeah, we're teaching kindergarten students about LGBT rights. And now this is the exemplification of it in your school. It's the manifestation. And now we need to, to, to walk the talk. And it's like, okay, I guess that, that fine, use the girl's bathroom. And then parents start pushing back. And then what do you do? You're kind of stuck between a hard or a rock and a hard spot. And you don't know how to respond as an administrator. Right, right. So there is a growing uh, concern. There's two things to this point, right? Number one, um, should schools be allowed to hide things from their parents, in your guys' opinions, from your experience? I mean, I know we're coming in as parents, right? So it, there is a lot of, um, I think, truth to that. And there's a lot of merit in what you guys are going to say. But how do you guys feel about that? I think for most of us, I think right now, like I think Abdullah is probably the only one with, the, with kids in school right now. Um, I said this homeschool currently. <clears throat> but, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like Quebec government, outside of this whole LGBTQ stuff they have, I think it's like Bill 50, F15 or something like that, right? Where it's like the Quebec government could yeah, come in and take the kids out mm-hmm. if they believe that the parents are doing some sort of harm. Yeah. And that definition of harm is so, is so broad, right? And you're literally removing agency from parents. Where like, yes, there are some instances where maybe the government does have to intervene where there is uh, uh, harm being done to the child. But the, the problem comes down is what definition of harm are you going? Because this for them, the definition of harm today for us obviously is nonsensical, but not allowing your kid to identify as a gender that they think that they are is harm to them. And therefore, as a government or as a bo- whatever governing body, I should come in, interject and remove you from your, your child or at least make sure that that child is safe from you and your thoughts or your beliefs, right? So it, it, it's definitely a very tricky 
because I do believe that there are times where a, a child does need to maybe, maybe removed from their parent. Mm-hmm. But that's so subjective, right? For us, maybe as for, as from a Muslim perspective, is that we a lot of that comes from legislation from Allah and the Muslim, what, 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 what that, that paradigm that we live in. In a Western society where there's no type of morality, right? Like where do you where do you define what is harm? Mm-hmm. And and more and more they're starting to define harm, like you said, as like oh, well, this is harming the the self esteem or the ideology or the identity of the child. And uh, just quick anecdote: one one of my one of my bachelor's classes at Concordia. Um, education class it's called like inclusive education or something it's one of the mandatory classes you have to take about how to make everyone feel welcome which is an amazing it's an amazing class right you make everybody feel welcome which is absolutely the, the mandate of a teacher mm-hmm. for sure so this class this particular uh, uh, night this evening in class the teacher showed us a clip of um, something they were doing in the states um, I believe it was in New Jersey where students in grade three or four were being doing all these activities to kind of break the gender norms and the gender stereotypes, right? So like, oh, girls can like pink and, and uh, uh, sorry, girls can like blue and boys can like pink. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of this entire day of activities of like, oh, you're a girl, but you can play soccer and you're a boy and you can play with dolls, which, okay, sure, the girl can climb trees, good for her. Uh, and nothing wrong with that. Girls should be able to climb trees, whatever, you know? But the thing is, at the end of this day, they made two lines on the board. And one of them was where I was born and then where I feel I belong. And they made the students put an X on every single one of the lines. And so all the girls put the X on the girl spectrum and the, the boys on the, uh, where I was born on the boys. And then on the second line, you see kids putting X's all across to show the students like, see, you can be a girl, but kind of feel more like what we understand as being a boy. But they are themselves proving themselves wrong because you're, you're saying climbing a tree is a boy thing and you like climbing trees. Therefore, you're more of a boy. Why not just say all activities are neutral and let people do whatever they want? Right. And at the end of this video, the teacher said, okay, now we get into groups and discuss. And this is the important part. So I'm sitting in this group of people who are being trained to be teachers. We're being trained to be teachers. This is a teacher training course. It's a bachelor's of education at Concordia University. And me and all these other people were sitting at this table and nobody wanted to be the first to speak. So I'm like, okay, I think this video was messed up. And everyone was like, oh my God, me too. Oh my God, that was so weird. Oh my God, wasn't that weird? Oh my God. Like, we're almost afraid to say that we think this is strange. And then when the teacher said, what do you guys think about it? I was like, look, clearly no one is going to say it. Let me be the guy to take the hit. So I asked the teacher, I said, don't you think that this is an activity that maybe should be done in high school? Or maybe just should be pushed a little bit. And her response to me was, "Um, Cotter, you are a, sorry, I shouldn't do the voice. I'm sorry. (laughs) She's just like, "Um, Cotter, you are a heterosexual cisgender normative male living in a patriarchal society you don't know the struggle that these non-gender stereotypical children go through and that's why you can't internalize their pain and understand that they need this from a young age to feel welcome in the classroom from such a young age so she's presenting it as a harm like Mm -hmm. ns is saying like this is harmful for us not to do this Therefore, if you want to avoid harm, we need to do this as early as possible, which is absolutely insane. Yeah, that is that is pretty crazy. I mean, look, it kind of ties in with a, a few different things. But number one, I guess my question to you guys is what would you guys put in place as parents or even as community leaders to kind of prevent some of this harm? Uh, number one, not knowing, which is a separate topic altogether. But also number two, when these agendas are being pushed and they are coming directly from the government, um, what do you do as a parent or as a community leader to kind of shelter your kids and shelter other members within, you know, your your community um, to kind of prevent some of these harms? 
So one thing is like, I think for, you know, my solution was at least a temporary solution was let me homeschool my kid, right? I don't think that's a overall solution. That's a very spot solution for me. Um, you know, we, I, I think with this whole recent uh, conflict in Gaza or like essentially genocide that's taking place is that you saw when Muslims mobilized the power that they could potentially have, right? Mm -hmm. And this goes at the local districts, school districts and stuff like that, where if you go into some of these schools, literally it's like sometimes 30% Muslim, 40% Muslim, or there's so many Muslims like in half the schools that you go to. And we don't realize the power that we have. We, we, there's this hadith of the Prophet where he told, you know, the Sahaba that the, there's going to come a time where the, the Ummah or the, the Muslims are like basically the froth of the ocean, right? Or something along this lines, so correct me if I'm wrong, if you guys know the hadith, and the, the Sahaba like, you know, what is, why is it going to be like that? Are they going to be small in numbers? Like, no, they're going to be large in number, but very little impact, right? And I think a lot of times the individual response is I can't really do anything. So either it's like flight or fly, so like they'll just leave because like it's not for me, or they'll just kind of like protect themselves within their bubble. But like if we got together as a community, if you go to like, we're in the West Island, right? We all know West Island. This school probably is like 30% Muslim or something, like pretty high oh, yeah. percentage, right? Yeah. If all the parents showed up at like a, like whatever those board meetings that they have or school board meetings, you can have a huge impact just by yeah. doing that and like pushing back on this stuff, right? Again, hard to mobilize people, but I think like every individual has to be able to take that on that some level of responsibility that I have to do something, right? I can't just sit back and just take the beating because which we have been. 100%. I think that also is a, a byproduct of this bystander effect that people always feel. Everyone's kind of just waiting for someone else to always step up and do the work or do the impact that they want for themselves without ever having to lift a finger, which is, you know, total insanity if you were to ask me. But um, this is definitely a thing that we're finding more and more within society. So I guess the solution for you is for people to just kind of kick that ideology aside, get together, mobilize together. And actually have that direct impact on those school systems, whether it's through the school boards or anything like that. I, I, I would also add to that. And I would say that it, it's it's um, also incumbent upon us to develop our own systems of educating our children. Mm. I think that um, we need to understand that the, the, there are certain people in power who are never going to give us what we want. And we, at some point, just need to do it for ourselves. And I don't mean to say that we become separate from the community, but I, I just believe that within our community, we have a responsibility to educate our own children and to educate them the way that we believe is, is best. So a part of that is making Muslim schools better, making Muslim schools more affordable, making Muslim schools um, more uh, appealing and, and more advanced. And I think that when we disregard that, then we're, we're harming ourselves because then you're giving you're still giving your children up to somebody and then begging them to do the job for you when you should be doing the job for yourself or the community should be doing it for themselves. And we've seen that with the protests, right? Look at all these protests we've been doing, like, oh, protect our children, the million the million man march or, or whatever that, yeah, that was. Yeah. Absolutely no result. Like the, the streets were filled. And then Trudeau puts out a tweet and says, we're never gonna stop standing by the LGBT community. Let us continue to stand by them and no amount of hate is going to overcome our resilience or whatever. Okay, cool. Now, to me, that sends a clear message that we are, are looking for a handout from the wrong people. And that um, maybe it would be I would, better. I would, I would disagree on that, right? Yeah. And I think a lot it. of times we we would we we look at it if we don't get an immediate result, we we failed, right? Like we can't. We still have to make the effort because you know I I don't know if you guys have ever listened to Savi Hamdi. Yeah. You know, the political commentator on the whole Gaza thing. He said, like, a lot of times we feel like we have to see the result of our actions, but the really a true visionary is the one who does the action, and the result is in the hand of Allah. Whether it I comes tomorrow or it comes 10 years from now, right? I wouldn't know. So, so but what, I'm, what I'm getting at, I agree with having 
a Muslim, like, you know, we, as a community, we need to build these things, but there's no way we're ever going to be able to service all of Muslims, right? Like, even if you had 30 Muslim schools that are a top notch, top of the thing, you would probably just maybe cover like 10% of the Muslim population here, right? Sure. Uh, but so I like, think, we'll but, never have that. Go ahead. But I think it would show them, it would show them that we, and when I say them, I mean like the people who are against this agenda or, or are pro this agenda and are, and are, I think are harming our children. Mm -hmm. I think it would show them that there is so much of a, of a, of a desire among the community to be away from this, that it would send a better message. Um, right, you know, right. I mean, for example, if, if you do open up these Muslim schools and you make them better, and then all the children who are in these public schools are, are going towards the Muslim schools because they don't have all this garbage, well, that sends a message to the government, a very powerful message to the government that we don't want to send you our kids because we don't agree with what you're doing. And so we kind of found our own solution and that forces them to change. But if we're giving them our kids regardless and just kind of saying like, hey, please change, please change, please change. Well, it's like, why would we? You're giving us the kids anyway. We're getting the funding anyway. What power do you have? And that, that bo the boycott was so powerful with that because people have been boycotting brands like Starbucks and McDonald's and others. And only after the boycott happened and they stopped getting what they wanted from us, did they finally say, hey, guys, listen, we're not even a part of this. Like, we have nothing to do with this. Like, please stop. Mm -hmm. And until then, if we're just like, hey, I'm going to keep buying your burgers, but please stop killing Palestinians, they didn't care. Right. And we, I think that the, the concrete action is what is needed. And, and part of it is money talks and people and the, the number of people that leave that is school in, in, in waves will have a greater impact, I think. So this but Muslim in, schools uh, aren't, aren't, kind of, um, aren't good enough. A wise, a wise brother named Abdullah Habib once said, you know, one thing that Muslims have that I think we take for granted is our superiority in our morality overall, right? And this kind of ties in with this point a little bit where we need to lead by example and start being the guys who actually helm these um, these different efforts ourselves and, you know, kind of push things forward. Um, so I'm, I'm totally with that idea, Khudar, but my question, I guess, to that would be um, about funding, for example, because we, we understand that public schools, you have to play ball with the government and you have to follow certain rules. Otherwise, you won't get funding. So how realistic of a solution would this be if, you know, or what would be a more realistic or more practical solution rather for us to actually, let's say, do this or, you know, try to try to enforce I, what you're trying to say? I think I think there's a there's a cycle. And this, this has been my belief for a long time that if for Muslim schools, I'm talking because I worked at John de la Minette, which is a Christian school in La Prairie. There are no Muslims in La Prairie. There are very few Muslims in La Prairie. OK. There's not even a mosque or a musallah in La Prairie, to my knowledge, because I looked for one and I, yeah. when I worked there and I couldn't find one. So there are not many Muslims. In the school where I taught, we were about 50 Muslim students oh, wow. praying dhuhr with me. Praying, those are the Muslim students who prayed dhuhr with me. Th these are not Muslim students who aren't praying. There are a bunch of Muslims in the school who aren't praying. This is a private Christian school. It costs more than the private Muslim schools. And the Muslims have to drive their kids from very far because no one lives there. So why are the Muslim parents putting their kids at Jean de la Menet and not at JMC or Le Savoie or MCQ? It's because these schools are, okay, first of all, they're underfunded. But the reason they're underfunded is because the, their, their clientele is so low. And the reason the clientele is so low is because the school is not good enough. People don't want to send their kids to JMC because if they go to Jean de la Menet, they know that they have a really good chance of getting into Champlain and a really good chance of getting into McGill. And that's what they want for their kids. And if they send them to JMC, they don't even know if they can get into college because the French level is so bad. Now that comes, and this, this is the cycle. So the cycle is school, it has low standards. 
um, because of not great teachers. They don't have great teachers because they don't pay proper salaries. They don't pay proper salaries because they don't have enough students to, to provide enough tuition to pay the salaries of the teachers. And they don't have enough students because the school is not good enough. And the school is not good enough because you don't have good teachers. And you don't have good teachers, it's a cycle, right? Right. So I think somewhere you have to break this cycle. And I think that, and that's why my wife and I took the job at JMC. It's a huge pay cut. This is a ridiculous pay cut this is a compared to what school, I right? can get in public. Uh, I beg your pardon? This is an Islamic school? Muslim school, yeah. It's a big pay cut. It's 70%. It's 70% of what a public teacher makes. Gotcha. And public teachers get paid so bad, they went on strike for 50 days. So that gives you an idea, right? And I'm getting 70% of that, okay? But it's necessary because I have a bachelor's and a master's in education. And I'm born and raised here, and I have a Quebec degree. And I might be the only teacher in the whole school who has a Quebec degree. And that's necessary because the education that I can provide will encourage parents to enroll their students, which enroll, which increases the money the school has to increase the quality of the education, which will draw in and attract more students. And then you can finally fix that cycle. But someone has to break in and be like, I'm okay with the garbage pay, or I'm okay with the subpar education, or I'm okay with something so that we can improve it because if not the cycle continues that's been my belief and that's why we if technically the, the if we, technically we, the the school gets injected with a million dollars does that solve your problem yeah i i definitely think that one million percent it it will definitely help because with a million dollars you can pay 20 teachers 50k salary on top is, of what they're already uh, getting a standard on top so let's it's more than no, no what i'm saying is if they're already getting 30 now they're getting 80. So a million extra, is it a funding but, issue? But, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't pay those teachers. You wouldn't pay those teachers. You would hire teachers who can actually teach. I, 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 stop I, I mean, I, I'm not dis, I'm not saying they can't teach. I'm saying that all of the teachers that have been hired have been hired from overseas mm. because they're okay with a lesser uh, salary. And also their qualifications don't allow them to teach in other schools. So they have no choice, but to teach at this school. And, and that means that the quality of the education is not going to be as good, right? Because you're getting someone who got his degree 40 years ago from an Arab country, it's not what Quebec colleges are looking for, right? So whatever you're transmitting to the students, as good as a teacher as you are, you can't really meet that. But Quebec educated teachers don't want to work there because they're not going to make even minimum public salary. So yeah, I, I think that if you injected the school with like a million dollars, that but would help. Is, is the, but um, is, are the people running the show at the school, are they an obstacle in any course? Or is it just a money issue? Because the money issue you, I mean, there's solutions to that. Like you go to people who are wealthy in the community because we have a lot of them, but is it past yeah. also the money? Because if you remember, bro, I wanted to leave engineering. I literally applied for a job as a math teacher or physics teacher at Le Savoir and was rejected. And this is someone who had like three years. So I was willing to do what yeah. you're saying, but there was a block <clears throat> yeah. from a no-name school, to yeah. be honest. So there was, I tried yes. to do what you did, right? And Absolutely. I was rejected. So what's, what's the, what, is there a block in Absolutely. terms of the administration? Uh, I think that more and more the administration is changing and that's with the new blood, right? So yeah. all of the Muslim schools that we talk about in Quebec, the oldest Muslim school in Quebec is MCQ. And MCQ is about 25 years old, 25 to 30 years old. That's the oldest Muslim school in Montreal. Um, and then everything else is newer than that. And so these schools have all been run by people who were first, f f first generation immigrants or had that kind of old school mentality. And right. even the person running JMC now has taken over from her parents. She's younger than me, by the way. The, the person running JMC now who hired me is younger than me and she took over from her mother. But something interesting she was telling me is she'll have these conversations with her mom where her mom says something like, um, why are you offering them this salary? They, they would agree to a lesser salary. 
And she's like, no, this is what we need to start paying people. Like, and I think this is a shift in, in mindset. And and the mom will agree. And she'll be like, okay, fine. You know, you know, you know what you're doing. Kind of go for it, right? So yes, there is this change in, in mindset where even just the other day we had Ibrahim Ahmed, who uh, I think you should definitely get on your podcast, Mashallah Barakallah. Great, great um, uh, Muslim representative for Muslim health and I'm counseling. To him about- and he, yeah, you should, Mashallah. He has a lot of great things to, to that, that he's been through and, and seen, Mashallah. He had a meeting with the principal and myself about how he can incorporate some mental health support for the students. And her response was, I love everything you're saying, but I don't have the money for it. So mm. come and here's what I could offer you as money and do everything you can. And yes, right. You want to talk about prevention. You want to talk about addiction. You want to talk about drugs. You want to talk about everything. Go for it. But here's all the money I have for you. And I'm sorry. So, yeah, I think money is a big thing. And I think the vision is changing more and more. But again, it's, look, it's not, it's not a number. It's not the only thing we can do to solve everything. But I'm saying if the Muslim schools do get better and we do start encouraging our families to put their children there and it's, it's worth their money and their, their livelihood and, and the, the future of their children, I think we could have a better impact on society because our students will be educated by us as opposed to by people that we don't agree with their morality. So question for you guys. Is there any danger in um, this bubble that it might create in some case where if we're constantly within this Muslim construct or Muslim bubble uh, that maybe our kids or kids within our community won't maybe perhaps be able to function to that same degree with or compete with the the overall community, let's say, or with non-Muslims. And um, so this is more like playing that devil's advocate, right? Or is it that, you know, you open it up as a Muslim school, but you allow for even Christians kind of like the school that you were teaching at where it was a, a Christian school and Muslims were sending, you know, their kids to that, uh, where, yeah. you know, Christians and even, you know, people of different faiths can kind of just bring their, their kids into Muslim schools. And in fact, they would actually want that. And perhaps maybe that would even create a, a, a more realistic bubble of what society is like, um, you know, within Montreal or Quebec or anything like that. What are you guys' thoughts on that? I yeah, think the jump bubble- it. I was, I was going <laughs> to say, I think, I think the bubble thing is a, is a valid concern. And I think uh, homeschooling parents deal with that bubble issue. Um, but I, from the homeschooled kids that I have seen, and, and as, uh, I'd like to hear what you do have to add to this, but the homeschooled kids that I have seen um, function just as well, if not better, uh, than those raised in public environment. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that you don't feel um, targeted you don't you don't feel uh as as a stranger you know like it's it's one when i was doing my research and for my bachelor's my, my final like kind of capstone project was this it was what are the effects of homeschooling on on uh, students emotionally socially academically and in almost all cases academically they were above above average mm-hmm. um socially socially in general they were like the, the 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 mean was above average uh you had some outliers but the mean was above average and the uh, the only issue that they faced was that they felt that they hadn't had the same kind of life experience of like being in a high school and like right. going to the lockers and like that that they they felt like they missed out on that. But in terms of their social capacity, one of the the studies that I had incorporated in the in the lit review had said that students who go to public schools get bullied, they get their beliefs um, uh, attacked, they 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 feel so much pressure social pressure 
that doesn't exist in the real world. It doesn't exist when you have a job. You don't deal with the same kind of bullying you deal with in high school, right? And because you're just with your family and your parents, people who love you, you actually end up growing up in such a more harmonious environment that you, in the, the most fragile stages of your life, you feel loved and welcomed and, and appreciated. And that helps you socially. Mm-hmm. So that when you do go to like college, you feel comfortable in everything you believe in. And except for the fact that they felt like they've missed out on some kind of life experience because they didn't go to school like everybody else and they can't relate to movies and stuff, um, they do are they are happier and more competent people. That's the, the research part. But um, I'd like to hear what I say. Yeah, for us it's a little bit different. We just we just started homeschooling uh, my son, so it's it's like only in year one. It's very early. I think like look, it, it's very easy. like I think maybe once upon a time the social aspect might have been a thing when you know as especially in Quebec. So for for those that don't know, Quebec is the least favorable province in Canada for homeschooling. They hate it, uh, and that's a big part of like wanting to have kids in school from an assimilation perspective yeah. or integration assimilation perspective. Uh, whereas like over here you have a social worker assigned to you or they check up on you they make sure that you're doing a bunch of stuff. Uh, the opposite, like if you go to BC, uh, where they're also very liberal, uh, but they'll pay you actually, they give you like $2,000 stipend a year oh, to wow. uh, homeschool okay. your kid. So some right? sort of stipend. So I think, yeah, Quebec is the worst. VC is the best. Ontario probably falls somewhere in the middle. The other thing about uh, Quebec to Ontario is Ontario, because homeschooling is a little bit more pro- uh, prevalent, they have a lot more resources for homeschoolers. So they have like, centers that are open during the day that homeschoolers can go to which you don't find within quebec mm-hmm. now going back to kind of like the uh the i guess maybe maybe the disadvantage or the bubble that kids might be in like if you as a parent are especially as a home if you decide to homeschool if you as a parent are socializing that like at least within the bubble of just socializing that's easily broken right mm-hmm. and especially now the community has grown a lot it's easy to socialize it's easy for kids to socialize they have they have a lot of avenues right uh, from a, I guess, a mental development perspective, uh, a, a bubble, like we live in a time where like access to information is so easy. So even for homeschoolers, they get that access to information, right? So again, back 20 years ago, where like social media didn't exist, it's just really you and your TV, and, and that's if you had a TV at home, you didn't get much exposure to the outside world. Now it's like every kid does, right? Like, you know, I talked to Frank, which who he has a bunch of, um, uh, one of my friends, he has one a bunch of kids in now that are teenage years, and like. You know, all of them homeschooled pretty much since they were born. And some high schoolers now that are still being homeschooled. Mm-hmm. And like the lingo that they use, how they talk and all that kind of stuff. He's like, oh, where did you learn this stuff? Yeah. Right. But it's like, <laughs> yeah, they're exposed to, you know, they're exposed to a lot of this stuff. Sure. Whether it's through social media. Uh, and they, they shield them from a good amount, but yet they're yeah. still exposed. Yeah, right? and hold on. So, so, um, you, so yeah. you, you've, I mean, through Helm and your community involvement, you've been exposed to a lot of different kids, yeah. a lot of different education systems. Hold on. You worked in the public school. You worked. Um, in Islamic schools, what are you guys' thoughts with respect to people in my position who have kids who are anywhere between one to five, one to four, who are about to enter school? What should they do? What's the best between homeschool, private school, public school, Islamic school for people living in Canada, US, Europe? Like, what's a realistic um, option for us? Yeah. So what I would suggest, like, like my, my thought on this, and a big part is like, especially us, we're all four guys. If anybody's going to be homeschooling, generally it's going to be the mother. Homeschooling is not for everybody. It's, 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 it's a big burden and it's not, it's not for everybody's personality. And like sometimes I, I hear scholars make a blanket statement, you should be homeschooling your kids. I don't think it's a very realistic statement to make because again, it's not for everybody. Yeah. Not every mother is suited out to be a homeschooler and it could be more harmful for her kids and the relationship she has with her kids than it is positive, right? So that's, that's one big caveat that I would give. Two is that what's the best solution? I think it depends, like, number one, your life stage, what you're capable of doing, not capable of doing. I would say, yes, 
as an overall, if you're able to homeschool, I think it's probably a better solution, but I don't think it's the, the only solution. Uh, between public and private school, um, now this is where, like, look, you as an individual, as a father, and even as a mother, your primary goal is not to become a millionaire, is not to have the amazing job. It's, it's to protect your family from the doubt, right? Mm -hmm. And as a father, at least, you know, a lot of times we'll make decisions based on where we can get the best opportunity from a job perspective. Are you making the best decision where your kids can go to school, for example, right? And that doesn't mean leaving Montreal, leaving the country, but you can get, you can move to areas, maybe downsize your house or downgrade or go to a different place where you could, kids can go to a better school. And that doesn't have to be, it could be a public school, but that has good values, good morals, has good education, and maybe has a lot of Muslims, for example. Mm -hmm. So I'm, again, not necessarily the solution, but as an in, as a parent, you have to think of those things because your primary responsibility is not to become a millionaire or have a huge house. It's to protect your kids and your family. And maybe sometimes making that sacrifice for your career and dreams is maybe finding some uh, some sort of different education if you're in a place where like the school sucks. I don't know, Heather, if you have any thoughts on that. I, I personally, I, I struggle with this question a lot. Um, especially because I've, I've been working in, in so many different kinds of schools and like local, overseas, par private, public, Muslim, Christian, whatever. People ask me this question a lot and I sincerely, I, I don't know what the right answer is and I'm kind of stressed because my daughter is two and a half and she's going to be five soon, inshallah, and I don't know what to do um, because anybody that you entrust your child to and at some point you're going to have to entrust your child to somebody, right? Because you can't, like Anna said, you can't just keep all your kids at home all the time forever. Like they're going to go out into the world. And so you just have to make a decision about who am I entrusting my child's mind with. Uh, ultimately, I think they're going to be exposed to everything, just like you said, right? Even the kids in the Muslim school. It's not like kids in the Muslim school come in and they're like, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, Ustad, let me let, recite to you Baqarah now. You know, like that's not, that's not what's happening. Yeah. And, and they, they have all the same issues, you know, they're vaping and they're dating and they're whatever. And it's, it's a high school. It's a high school. It's a high school. Now, in the high school, the, the, one thing for sure is, look, the girls in the Muslim high school, and you, Abdul, you asked the question about primary, right? So I'll, uh, I think my, my experience and my uh, interpretation of the things is more for high school, right? So in high school, at least in a Muslim high school, uh, the drugs are frowned upon not frowned upon, but like, like people don't do drugs in the school or on the territory of the school or anywhere near the school. Uh, hijab is part of the uniform. So girls feel comfortable wearing hijab in the school, whereas they might not feel comfortable wearing it in a public school where it's not the norm. Um, there's a musalla where kids don't have to feel pressure to pray. Now, I think that the fact that there's no, mus there's no musalla in a public school trains kids to be bosses and to learn to pray in public regardless of the stigma but you can't expect that of every single high schooler it's a very delicate age especially with regards to peer pressure and you don't want to put them in an environment where it's like uh, uh like either you get like 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 you're setting swim. them up you, you're setting them up for failure essentially like yeah it's, the best like, it's, it's sink or swim right it's like i'm gonna throw you into the jungle yeah if you come out you're gonna be a boss lion king but chances are you're gonna get eaten up Right. And so do I want to take that risk with my kid? So in high school, I just think just because Muslim schools give them all of the environmental factors to, to produce the best Muslim uh, identity outcome, that's a good thing to do. Now, for primary school, I don't know. I don't know, uh, because you, you do want them to still kind of know what it's like to, to be around non-Muslims if they're going to be living in the West. So. To answer your question, I don't know, but I think for high school, I think for high school, it makes sense to put them in a Muslim school just so the girls can feel comfortable wearing hijab for five years, at least in the school, 
um, people can can have a comfortable way to pray their Zohar prayer every single day for five years, pray their Jum'ah every single week for five years. I think it's a good training for them to live in a Muslim environment for that high school period. Yeah, but are, are you just are you potentially primary... just delaying um, those challenges for when they eventually are outside of that and they have to be comfortable with their Muslim? Yes. Yeah, so are you delaying it? Yes. Yes, but you're delaying it with, with, with reason because the high school years, the 12 to 17 years old, this is the most delicate mm -hmm. age. And so I feel more comfortable telling an 18-year-old, yo, be a boss and pray outside than telling a nervous 14-year-old who just hit puberty and just realized, oh my God, the whole world's looking at me to go outside and pray, you know? I, I, I'm comfortable making that delayed decision. It's going to happen one day. They're going to be, you know, out of their bubble one day. But I think those ages are so delicate that you need to have that support. So, but I think in a, a big part of that, it just comes down to parenting. How much are you modeling for your kids? How, much, how are you raising them? Because at the end of the day, like, look, one thing that we often forget is that, you know, Dara is one of the most powerful things. You could do everything right raising your child and they could go the totally opposite way. And you have no control over that. I had a recent, you know, again, another homeschooling friend of mine. He was mentioning a friend of his. They, all three kids, I, I remember meeting them when they were young. Really good kids, really good family, very practicing and the three kids grew up, uh, two older daughters and one son. And then out of nowhere, the son went, met this girl, started dating her, married her, non-Muslim girl, doesn't really identify much as being Muslim. And he grew up in a really you know, strong homeschooling family, right? So yeah. look, at the end of the day, the biggest thing is du'a because you, you're never going to know. But obviously, you need to tie your camel. Yeah. So to echo you know, some of what Khudr said, you, like, look, a lot of Muslim schools, even what I see, like, again, being from an outside perspective, it's always like, oh, you know, like, these Muslim schools are not that much better than regular high schools. Like all these kids are messed up. They all drink stuff like that. My dad is right close to a Muslim school. He says like at lunchtime, I see kids coming outside of my house and they're, they're like hiding in a in pathway drinking, right? And these are Muslim kids from the Muslim school. But again, that's going to happen. But you still have a somewhat better environment. You have a better environment. You have the fact that they have a place to pray. There's a bit more comfortability. Just being in an Islamic environment, wearing hijab, all that kind of stuff is a positive. So I would say that for sure. At the mm -hmm. elementary school level, I think it's a matter of like, as parents, we need to be involved as much as possible with our kids. We need to spend time with them, right? They need to see like all the different things. Like, are you praying in front of them? Are you praying with them, right? Are you modeling all the things that you want them to be? Are you modeling that for them? Because if you're not, then you can't expect anybody else to do that for them. Absolutely. And I think uh, part of that role modeling thing, like Anna said, we're not, our mandate as a Muslim man is not to, to necessarily become a billionaire, but the, our, our mandate is for our family first and foremost. And so if you are spending 24 hours a day on your job and not seeing your children and they're growing up without a father figure in the family, they're going to seek that role model somewhere else. Now, whether that's going to be Andrew Tate, who Alhamdulillah is Muslim now, so it's not so bad, but I mean, or somebody else um, that is going to be, oh, Alhamdulillah, uh, or, or somebody else who is going to show them the complete uh, 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 worst uh, example, then you have only yourself to blame because you spent all of your time away from your daughter and your son uh, thinking that that's what was best for them when really they needed their father present to show them right from wrong. I think that's super important. And so as Muslim men, we need to understand that the Prophet ﷺ did go out and work, but he was the best to his family first and foremost. And he said, that the best of you are the best of their families and I'm the best of my family or the best of their wives and I'm the best of my wives. So you, you do want to have that presence in the household and not just for, you know, the 10 minutes that you eat dinner with your kids and say, how was school? And they grunt and they go in their room and stay on their phones, right? Mm -hmm. Like you want to have, the, and, and you know, like, look, 
the typical thing, right? Daddy issues leads a girl to do all sorts of crazy things. It's a trope. It's it's this stereotype, okay? But there is some truth to it, and it's not just for the girls; it's for the boys as well. The kid, the boy. I want to say there's some truth to it. I think there's a lot of truth to it. Yeah, uh, because the dad's like, like you come, you you deal with high schoolers a lot, right? And then when like, and if you speak to even scholars, like anecdotally, a lot of them will say this, right? Like they'll come to the, you know, parents will come to them, you know, my child has gone this, or he's doing this, and then they'll ask them like, what's your relationship with your child? Yeah. Like. Uh, and it's like, you know, they, they kind of like pause. Like, I didn't, you, they didn't spend the time building that relationship, right? And like you're yeah. saying, like, as fathers, I think there's, you know, big emphasis, or sorry, as men or males in this society, the idea of like going, succeeding, becoming that boss, like making the millions of dollars, going to work, work, work hard, hard, hard. But then there's no emphasis put on like spending time with your family. Yeah. Right? I would say probably I'm guilty of that to a certain extent, but it's, it's so important, right? The, the kids need that from both parents, the mother and the father. I think fathers definitely uh, lack in that space because there's even when you come to, you know, practicing Muslim guys that care about this stuff, it's just like in their mind, like I need to provide for the family. I need to give them the best life. But, you know, going and making the most money is not giving them the best life. Giving them that, like that financial stability doesn't mean equate to the best life. That's right. I, I straight up have this conversation often with my wife where she'll be like, what should we do with Jenna, our daughter? And I'll be like, I need to do this, 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 this with her because, and she's two. Because I don't want her one day to be like sweet talk by some guy and like go commit zina with him because her dad wasn't in the picture. And I know it's an extreme example, but that's literally a, a real fear in my head that like I'm not going to be present and she's going to need some male like uh, affirmation and I'm not going to give it to her because I'm never here. And then some random douchebag is going to give it to her in high school and she's going to run off with him. And that, that's such a scary thought to me that I never want her to experience that. I want to just be there all the time with her as much as I can. Right. Of course, I am the man of the family. I got to provide. I got to do what I got to do. But I, I like if it's between swiping on my phone or just relaxing or taking a nap or like drinking a coffee and being alert and spending time with her, I'd force myself to kind of spend time with her as much as I can because that's so important. Do you have a sense? A Usually by the se seventh or eighth coffee or? So today I've had four so far. I've had four so yeah, far. Father, do, you, do you have a sense for uh, what the family dynamic is as a teacher like often? Uh, of, of the child? Yeah, like the, what their family dynamic, like how involved are their parents? Do you, do you have that insight? Uh, you can you can generally tell, bro. You can generally tell very with almost like ninety percent accuracy. Like it's it's very clear. And what are the trends you which... see? Like I don't know if let's say yeah, both parents are working, right? That's like let's say let's say both are? parents are working. How are you seeing that uh, you know uh, manifest itself in the child? Unfold in the child's yeah. behavior, kind of right. So so there's in, okay so there there's one individual one 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 student male student uh, who mm -hmm. came to me and told me that he has an addiction to pornography, <clears throat> and um, my my first thing whenever a student comes to me and says they have any kind of an issue uh, is what's your what's your prayer like what are your prayers like that for me is the first question I always ask because if you're not praying your five daily prayers I don't care if you're watching pornography start praying and then we'll work on the porn addiction right. Um, that, that's, that's the priority. And most often you'll find that they're not praying or they're missing at least one prayer almost every single time. Right. So we work on that first, but this kid came and I'm like, what's your prayers? Like, he's like, yeah, I don't really pray. Especially because once he watches porn, he has to take a shower and he can't do school, whatever. And I'm like, tell me, tell me about the experience. What is it like? And he says, I come home. No one's home. Right. Neither his father nor his mother, cause they're both working. Comes home, goes to his bedroom on his computer. He watches porn and then he games. And then his mom comes home and his mom is like, there's a whole bunch of things to do around the house. I spend the whole day at work. Now I got to cook, co-clean something. And he's like, mom, I can't pause the game. I'm playing with my friends online. It's not a pausable game. And she's like, I don't care about your game. He gets into arguing with her. A lot of stress, a lot of shame, a lot of guilt goes back to pornography. 
the negative experience with the parents, the absence of the parents, he, he just has terrible lifestyle routines and habits and no one's on him to pray. No one is on him to do anything but be on his computer because they're so busy and tired and exhausted and they come home from work and they're like, now I got to make dinner and, and just there's no connection with the kids. And I get it because maybe his and his parents, from what I know, um, and a lot of the students, they are first generation. And so maybe their degrees don't count the ones they got back home, whatever. Basically, they have to work low salary, low income jobs and work a lot of hours and put in a lot, especially because private schools aren't cheap, bro. Muslim schools are like 7K a year, 8K a year. So they're doing what they think is best. Instead of spending that 8K to relax and work less, they're working more and putting him in a private school instead of a public school, which is respectable and commendable, but they're not spending any time with him. So they don't know what he's doing. And he has no one to watch over him. So he's just in his room all day doing garbage stuff. And as soon as myself and Ibrahim Ahmed got involved and Ibrahim Ahmed started checking up on him and texting him and I would see him every day at school, be like, yo, are you going to pray the today? Can you pray the today? Did you shower this morning? Whatever. He told us that he, uh, he, he first of all, a world of change in this kid's life just by having adult males who care about him and asked him questions world of change in this kid's life he used to be lethargic he used to not say a word in class he used to just be dead all the time like zombie mode and now Allahumma barik, he has life in him he's happy he's smiling more and he came to see me after the winter break and he's like i want a 14 day streak or a 12 day streak and he's like no nothing i didn't watch anything i didn't do anything haram it was amazing thank you so much you guys have helped so much and he'll text Ibrahim Ahmad from time to time that presence of someone is just like so important for these kids, bro. Right. And if it's the parents, I think it's so much more valuable than if it's a random stranger like me. But you need those role models. I think that's, that's why otherwise you're, you're like, like you're finding a lot more kids gravitate towards these um, mentors, you know, online uh, that honestly aren't necessarily the best role models, to, to be frank. You know, you mentioned Andrew <laughs> Tate before. I mean, now he's a Muslim, uh, which is amazing. Uh, and may Allah subhanahu wa guide him and keep him steadfast. Um, but like, you know, even people like us in the past, you know, we used to listen to like, uh, you know, Ben Shapiro or like uh, Jordan Peterson. And then when truth comes to shove, when it comes to this, these points, like what's happening right now in Gaza, uh, you, they turn out to be the villains, really. At the end of the day, right. Yeah. Like people that yeah. you don't actually want to associate. But because there's this big void, these these young people are really gravitating to is these people who aren't fit to be role models. Um, so, so from what I'm understanding from, from this conversation, a lot of it is due to the fact that, uh, a lack of, um, uh, emulation, at least from the parents' side as to just kind of walking the walk and being that example for the kids. That's the first thing. But second thing, what you guys are also mentioning is being really present and involved in the children's life. And so would you guys say that these are like pillars for success for kids to feel confident, for kids to feel good in the everyday school system overall? Hundred percent. So, like, you know, just kind of go uh, back about this thing. You know, you talked about like, you know, online mentorship, like not mentorship, but like online personalities that young people, especially males, will take as mentors. And I was talking to Holder about this just very recently. This idea of mentorship, especially like interge intergenerational mentorship, which never really happened, right? Right. So, like, we're you know we're dealing with something with like a younger kid, you know, very active, mushroom and stuff like that, but never doesn't want to take any advice. And I like I remember myself being at that age is like. Yeah, just leave me alone. Let me do my thing. I know better than you, right? And part of that is just youth being youth, and not to say that I'm I'm above that. You know, I, I I still see some of that in myself still, but it's kind of like you you can't expect that out of someone if you've never taught them that, right? right. So it's like we haven't set up mentorship for younger kids or intergenerational. We're like when I think about like parties that I use are dawats for those that know the word dawat, 
when I used to go to those uh, growing up, dads used to sit in the room by themselves, talk about politics, and the kids would sit you know, on their own. And there'll never be any interaction between the parents and, and the kids, right? And it's like, I have to, like, as a parent, you need to force that. You need to, like, hey, all the kids, we're all going to sit in one room and we're going to chat for a little bit. Yeah, you want to go for a little bit, go play your thing, but we're all going to sit at least for a little bit of time, right? So they get to interact with people that are older than them and really learn and they have experience. Like, how many times have you sat with someone that's like a senior or someone older than you? And you're like, wow, I should have sat with you so much longer ago, right? Right. Just so much wisdom to impart on me, right? And, like, it happens all the time. So it's like, we haven't set up that type of environment for a lot of kids. So that when we expect that type of behavior, it's just, it's just not there. You can't force it on them. So mentorship is super important, right? And if we don't give it to them, they're obviously going to go seek it out somewhere else. Whether it's an and, and we're see, Go ahead, Kodar. No, no, I was going to say, I 1 million percent agree with that. And if we just look at the prophetic example, like the Prophet Muhammad was so involved with the young Sahaba. And we have so many hadith, like just, just, I was just looking this one up. Um, it's, it's a very famous hadith in the 40 Nawawi by uh, Abu, um, Ibn Abbas, Abdullah Ibn Abbas. And just, I'm just going to read the beginning of the hadith. Basically, he says, uh, this is Abu, Ibn Abbas, Abdullah Ibn Abbas saying this hadith. He's saying, one day I was behind the Prophet, والسلام, riding on the same mount. And by the way, the, the interpretation of this or the, the historical like chronology of this is that Ibn Abbas at this age, was maybe between 10 to 13 years old, mm-hmm. 10 to 13 years old. He's like grade six, grade, grade five to sec one, right? He's a young kid, bro. And he says, Prophet turned to me and said, oh, young man, I'll teach you some words of advice. Be mindful of Allah and Allah will protect you. Be mindful of Allah and you'll find him in front of you. If you ask, then ask of Allah alone. If you seek help, then seek help from Allah alone. Know that if the nation were to gather together to benefit you with something, they would not benefit you with anything except what Allah has already prescribed for you. If they were to gather together to harm you with anything, they wouldn't be able to harm you except with anything that Allah has already prescribed upon you. The pens have been lifted and the pages have dried. And there's different narrations of this. But basically, it's such a deep message and the Prophet is literally just on a mount. He's not like he's giving a halaqa. Yep. He's just like in a car ride, right? Imagine you're just in the car with a kid in sixth grade and you turn to me like, hey kid, let me give you some life advice. No one can harm you except with anything Allah already written for you. So you want to do something for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You want to go and pray in public. You want to you know, take care of your religion. You want to start growing a beard. You want to say no to girlfriends. You want to say no to drugs. Nobody can do you any harm except what Allah's already written. That's so powerful, man. And I don't feel like we have those kinds of mentors today, unfortunately, because there is a disconnect. Like Anna said, and whenever we're chilling with these kids, we don't we don't impart that wisdom on them. Mm-hmm. So I try to make it a point. My daughter's two years old again, but in the car I play Afkar, I play Quran, I try to um, make her benefit from even things like a car ride where there is no seemingly benefit, right? Because she's sitting back down and not really participating. And I'll ask her like, "Hey, Jenna, can I play some Quran now?" And she'll almost always say, "Yeah, of course, Baba, please do." And she'll start repeating with the Afkar. She doesn't even know what she's saying, but for her, she's just like. Right, just like repeating after Ayatul Kursi, right? And this kind of intergenerational, like, impartment of wisdom and knowledge needs to be more conscious in our heads. We're the, the next adults, right? Like, I still feel like a kid sometimes, but, like, uh, you know, uh, whether we accept it or not, we are the adults and we have some kind of wisdom we've got to impart on these kids. Any, any chance we get, even if we're on a mount, even if we're in a car, this is like a 10 minute car ride. We need to impart some wisdom, some kind of knowledge, and not trivialize it, I think. The other, the other part to this, I think, Khodar, you know, we had talked about it before, is also like the harms of these online personalities for a lot of kids because of the fact that they, like, again, you know, you, a lot of them don't necessarily have balanced approaches, or again, just speaking from their place wherever they are within their own context, and it, we see it time and time again the extremism that it leads to, right? Where these kids yeah. are taking their knowledge or their their advice from these YouTube personalities, and not to say some, you know, some of them might have good intention in terms of what they say, some of them maybe right. not, who knows. Uh, but that's not where you get your mentorship. That's not where you should be getting your advice or your your knowledge from, right? Yeah. It needs to yeah. be from 
people on the ground that you trust that are around you that know your context know your you know your society your community and stuff like that right and we see it amongst especially again amongst young males where they're getting that information and then it so easily and so quickly leads to extremism yeah. uh, in so many different ways so Although you probably see it way more than i do yeah, 100%, bro. Especially when a kid has been non-religious for so long. It's like he wants to make up for lost time and he just goes like completely in the other extreme, right? Like the guy goes from like dating and haram and everything and then all of a sudden like everyone's a kafir for him um, because they don't pray like a hundred rakat of qiyam al-layl. Like, astaghfirullah, what are you doing, you know? And this kid, generally what happens, they end up burning out. And we've seen so many cases of this. Like guys who go from one extreme to the other and then end up burning out and going back to what it used to be because Islam is a balanced approach. You know, like those three men who were like, I'm going to never get married. And the one was like, I'm never going to break my fast. I was like, I'm never going to stop praying. I just hold on to this rope and like, I'm never going to sleep. Prophet like, I get married, I fast and eat and I pray and sleep. Like this extremism is more and more common, especially with dudes like Daniel Hakigaju. And I'm, 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 I'm naming him in particular because I think he's the most... Um, intense in just like takfiri or not takfiri but just like calling out uh, Muslim personalities and I believe there's so much good work that is done by Daniel Hakigaju mashallah there's so much of his work that I love and I I find it so disappointing that there's this other side to his work that is like bashing um, reputable Muslim scholars for whatever reason and then the youth who watch that and say yeah all of these scholars are kuffar and no one can take anything from them. And they sit back yeah. and say, I'm doing a good thing now by encouraging others not to listen to them. I think that's, that's upsetting. It's disappointing. And so it's not Islamic. It really ties into our next topic or our next story, which is the role that social media plays in everyday um, you know, youth and their Islamic identity, I guess. And even beyond that, you know, just um, perceived perfection overall. So we're going to switch gears. We're going to get into this topic right here. Um, so the reason why a lot of people, I feel, uh, listen to, uh, you know, a person like Daniel or even Andrew Tates and so on and so forth, a lot of it is really social media, right? It's social media driven. Uh, there's a kid who likes what he has to say. He shares it with other kids who, you know, might not know him or might not know about him. Um, you know, you got to follow this guy. You got to listen to this guy. This guy knows what he's talking about. Nah, 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 nah. <clears throat> and so this whole thing spreads. And, um, what is a parent's role and even as a as a community leader um with regards to social media and kind of tempering that controlling that in the youth life and some of the dangers that might come out of that whole realm in and of itself what are you guys' thoughts with regards to that it's a tricky one i don't i don't have a kid at that age yet i've talked to some parents about it and it's interesting what you what you get, right? Like again, there's no right. It's not let's say there's no right or wrong answer, but there's no like one universal answer, right, for this. But I have some parents that I've spoken to that are very like nonchalant, like yeah, you know, I trust my kid, and it's just like really open like that. You know, my kid's gonna do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And then some others that lock down everything. And I, I don't know if it's meant to be a balance in between, or you should be up monitoring your kids. I would say at the younger ages for sure, if you decide to give your kid a phone or access to any of this stuff, which to me is definitely becoming harder to limit that access. Uh, but if you could hold on, the, push that as far as possible into the late teens, great. If you can't do that, then definitely, alhamdulillah, there, there are controls now where you can at least monitor and see what right. your kids are doing. Parental and just control. building that from the start. Is that like, hey, as a parent, I'm going to be seeing all the messages you send and stuff like that. There's no need for you to be hiding stuff, right? So uh, I'll share I'll share this story. I don't know what that age would be, though, where you would kind of like start giving some freedom. This is a story that popped up over here. This is from September of last year. So... 
sexualized Instagram imagery found to affect young women's body image, right? So these are some of the dangers that might come up. Viewing sexualized Instagram posts by online influencers increases the negative mood and body dissatisfaction of young female adults who view them and promotes negative effects among viewers beyond striving for thinness and attractiveness. So this is some of the dangers that might come up, you know, from uh, the world of social media and just being overly uh, consumed by social media. And there's, in fact, some other... Uh, studies that have also come out there was a, a recent one that came out as well saying that this younger generation there's this kind of perceived laziness that this younger generation is lazy they don't want to do anything uh and in fact what the story came out of what the study concluded is that they're not actually in fact lazy but they're just over consuming social media to the point where they're just burning out emotionally um you know rationally whatever you might call it uh, and so my point is this, right? There's this kind of perceived perfection. There's we're, we're living in a world of influencers where we view some of these people, whether they're good or bad, we uh, gravitate towards their influence. And a lot of times that could have a negative impact in the grand scheme of things, whether that's a bad body image, like for, for young girls nowadays, um, or even for men, this perceived perfection that, you know, you have to be a boss, a millionaire, and that's the only type of male that is successful or you know, positive in the in the in the light of, of different people. Uh, what are you guys' thoughts about this, or how can we counter some of these uh, negative effects? So, there's a lot of points to your question. Um, I, I think I'd like to just first of all talk about the the uh, social media aspect and just the what what student what people consume, not just students, but what people consume in general. And this is a question that I get a lot from students and parents. And I think that my my answer is always the same. Um, there's a hadith qudsi in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that uh, whosoever, it's in Bukhari, whosoever shows enmity to someone devoted to me, I shall be at war with them. My servant draws not near to me with anything more loved by me than the religious obligations. And my servant continues to draw near to me with extra deeds, so nawafil, nafil deeds, so that I shall love him. And when I love him, I am his hearing with which he hears, his seeing with which he sees, his hand with which he strikes, and his foot with which he walks. And then it continues. It's a long hadith khutsi, mashallah. But this is the part that I focus on. Because the reality is, bro, there are some students. Look, every student, every, and I'm just using students because I work with students all the time. Every student is uh, at risk of falling into haram stuff. Every single one. There is no exception. Um, but there is a clear trend that anybody with two brain cells can see. That the good kids are good and the bad kids are more prone, Right. And so what differentiates the good kid from the kid who is more prone, I believe sincerely is this hadith in Bukhari, that when the kid is good on his obligations, this is the way I ask the prayer question, right? Are you praying your five-day prayers? Because if you're not praying five-day prayers, I don't care what else you're doing. Let's, let's, let's focus on that and the rest will come, right? But Allah says that when someone is good with their obligations, um, that's what Allah loves the most. And then they keep doing nawafil until Allah loves this person. And when he loves them, he becomes their eyes with which they see, not literally, obviously it's a metaphor, basically saying they don't like looking at haram anymore. They don't like hearing haram anymore. They don't like touching haram anymore. They don't like walking to haram anymore. And that's a clear difference. People who listen to music, bro. Like, look, we know so many guys who are like addicted to rap music and garbage music. And then all of a sudden they become religious. And now a rap song comes on and he doesn't like listening to the song anymore. Why? Is the song bad? Did he change his taste in music? No. But he's gotten so close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He doesn't like to hear that stuff anymore. And I believe it comes from this hadith in Bukhari where it's like Allah has become his ears. So now the filth doesn't sound good anymore. Mm. The haram doesn't look good anymore, right? You go from someone who watches haram online 
to now becoming more practicing, more religious, close to Ospantara, doing Nefer fasting and stuff, someone shows him a porn video and he's like, what the hell are you showing me, bro? That's so messed up, right? Whereas maybe a year ago, this guy would have been very encouraged to look at that, okay? So, I again, it's not a one solution for everything. Anybody is prone and at risk, but I'm saying a kid who you train to be good on his obligations right. and want to do the Nefer stuff, and that's an important thing, to want to do the Nefer stuff, not to feel forced, I think that kid will have a better chance at dealing with all that garbage online because they will be in a state where they don't like looking at haram and they don't like hearing haram. And this is the same with drug addiction. It's the same with preventative measures and good lifestyle habits to avoid addiction. You will focus on the proactivity rather than the reactivity because the proactivity states that if you encourage a child to have good lifestyle habits and a good mentality and a good mindset close to Allah, they will not even want to go towards that garbage stuff. Right. And the typical example, I'm just going to close off with this, Frank said something hilarious one time, bro. Someone is like, yo, man, like, aren't you curious about like what this haram thing is like? And he's like, aren't you curious about what it's like to sleep with a dude? And he's like, no, that's disgusting. He's like, well, some guys are. So why are you not? And he's like, well, because that's just I don't want to. He's like, yeah, you don't have to be curious about every single thing in the world. You don't have to be curious about everything and want to do everything. There are some things you just don't want to do. That's and right. as Muslims, we need to train our kids to understand there's just some things we don't want to do. There's some things we don't want to be a part of, right? Like, I'm not curious about what bacon tastes like. I don't need to taste bacon because I don't feel yeah, like I'm the, Okay, it. so I, I really like the fact that you're saying it comes down to prayer. I love when there's, like, one actionable thing you can tell someone to do and that'll f fix a lot of things. So, so question for you is when do you start doing that? Yeah. Like, at what age is that appropriate to do? Because if, if it's a – like, a lot of – people in fourth grade, 10 year olds are watching porn. Like porn is becoming this thing where yes. it's, you're watching it earlier and earlier and etc. But at what age do you start asking that question? Bro, from now, from now, I'm careful with the words I use. So I told Noor this a, a couple of weeks ago. When I tell my daughter I'm gonna pray, I don't say, Jenna, I have to pray. I say, Jenna, Bubba wants to pray right now. I wanna pray. Do you wanna pray with me? Because when we feel that prayer is a burden and it comes out in our language, and I tell my daughter, I have to go to work. She's like, oh, Baba doesn't want to work, but he has to work. It sucks. Work is not nice. I have to pray. Oh, Baba doesn't want to pray, but he has to pray. So prayer is not a nice thing. That's what the kid is understanding. But you change it and you say, Jenna, I, I really want to pray Dhuhr right now. I'm, I want to pray Dhuhr. I'm going to pray Dhuhr now. It, we need to change this idea that like Islam is a burden. And sometimes we believe it and we don't like to say it, but it comes out in our words regardless. And we have to be careful of that, especially with our kids as of the youngest of ages, right? So my hope is that I will have instilled, and my daughter loves Quran now. Mm -hmm. I hope it's going to stay, inshallah. But she's always telling me, can you play some Quran, please? Baba, I want to hear Quran. So I hope that's going to stay in her, inshallah. May Allah you know, bless all of our children with the love of Quran. Allahumma ameen. From now, you start training them to like these things. No, exactly. Was your question more so like when you start getting them to pray or like when you notice some issues, like when you bring your prayer up? So like, this, question? my question is more so, I think there's a gap between um, when it's... So look, okay. In terms of encouraging, I think you should do that like Khudur is doing literally as early as possible. Uh, Khudur giving the solution of have you fixed your prayer sounds like it's targeted towards a more older crowd, maybe a, a crowd that's 13 or whatever. Maybe that's an assumption I'm making, but it sounds like it's to someone that's a little bit older. However, I'm making the hypothesis that people start doing a lot of these sins younger than 13. Maybe they're starting them at 8 or 9, and then we're telling them to pray. So my question is more so, um, if the advice of prayer is at a later stage in life, what about those kids who are early on, 8, 9 years old, and 
consuming some of this stuff or I, like it's a very awkward question but it is what it is a lot of kids are no i, I would dude I would, I would say eight nine years old yeah like are you praying look if the kid is watching porn then then he clearly has an understanding of of life enough to know what a prayer is and to, yeah, to pray so my thing would be like yeah as of eight nine years and again i'm not saying that prayer is going to fix everything because you know a lot of guys who pray and still do a bunch of haram right but i'm saying that if he prays his fight he's waking up for fajr every day he's praying fajr every day he has a much better chance at avoiding a lot of the haram than if he's not praying anything you know what i mean like i just think it's it's a good preventative measure it's a good proactive measure yeah. what are the and, stats around that because i'm not even sure like i would assume at eight years I, I know it's becoming lower and lower but i would assume at a younger age it's more like curiosity based less arousal based uh just because you know they haven't mm -hmm. developed uh, at that level yet but you know i know it is like I remember doing a study uh, or reading a study. It was like the average age of exposure is like now, like or like eight. eight I forget the percentages, I, but it was a pretty high percentage. I just, high percentage, it. I, just right? I just, I just googled <laughs> it. The age of exposure to pornography is getting younger, with the average age being around ten years old. Wow. There have been cases where seven and eight year olds have been exposed to porn online. Um, blah blah blah. But yeah, ten years old, according to a random Google search, so, is the average. Yeah. Yeah, it's clear that like Shaitan yeah. is uh, destroying <laughs> kids younger and younger. And listen, bro, it's 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 the hypersexualization of everything. That's bro. the reality. Like, yeah. My, yeah. My my daughter got a Barbie doll because Barbie was a big thing, and someone gave her a gift as a Barbie doll. And this Barbie doll like is, uh, bro, she looks like a porn star. Like I don't know what's going on with toys, but like she has like a whole bunch of makeup, and her body is like super like hourglass and like has like flashy pink like almost non-existent bikini yeah. and i'm like what the hell Wait, this is for my daughter what this is messed up this is so, insane. so that's what i'm trying to say so like look where where prayer will definitely help with a certain sins and i and i definitely do believe that and i think that is the most probably the most important pillar for sure to establish at the youngest age probably the best uh but what i will say is what about for some of those things that are not necessarily outright sins but they do shape how you feel about yourself overall so like things mm -hmm. like body image Things like, you know, success markers, like, for example, being that millionaire and driving a Lambo because everyone who's a YouTuber has a Lambo or a Tesla or whatever it may be. And so this young kid who's like, you know, in his early 20s now or going to that point uh, is now seeing himself as a failure because he doesn't have his own online business or he's not a YouTuber who has, you know, X amount of followers or he's not, you know, she's not a, a girl who has abs and uh, who works out like 30 times a day, like how do you fix these issues also or how do you prevent some of the negative impacts for those issues that you might not necessarily be able to prevent you know through prayer necessarily so right? there was there was an interesting campaign done by dove i don't know if you ever saw that it was like kind of the uh yeah like the body it was it was to do with body image essentially right so okay. then what they did is they brought a bunch of mothers and daughters into a room and then they showed uh the girls independently like a bunch of instagram uh images right i think some of them were like super like very common model stuff again and then it showed general stuff and just try to get them to compare and what they thought then also I, I forget the whole campaign and then talked about themselves and it's just like the effect that those pictures had on just their own perception of themselves and then the mothers all came in there like shocked oh you think this like you think this by yourself right mm -hmm. i like there's probably different factors that that thing was proving but one of the biggest things is that parents are not involved in these conversations with their parents right they don't they have a hard time having these awkward conversations and i think for a lot of parents it's like being getting over yourself and having these difficult conversations or figuring out ways to do it, right? Like, look, a lot of times as, as parents, you know, 
there's an instinct portion of it, and I always believe that, right? But we can educate ourselves. You can go and read. There's a lot of people that didn't research on this. Go read. How do I, like, literally, go ask ChatGPT, how do I have this conversation with my daughter? How do I have this conversation with my son? Like, like it's, it's just go do a bit of research because it's actually, there's a lot of solutions out there, right? That's like when it's a little bit too late. If you're thinking about preventative, um, there's a very good book, at least from a father perspective, a strong, uh, strong father, strong daughters. And it's written by this Christian Meg Meeker. So she's done a couple of books like that. I'd, I'd recommend the read. Uh, you could tell it's coming from a religious background, obviously, right? Yeah. But the idea of that, having that strong relationship, especially as a father to the daughter, it's, it's, it's so big in terms of how they see themselves, where they get their validation from, mm-hmm. which which um, affects all this stuff on social media, right? Like how, how they ingest it, right? No matter what, it's always going to affect them, even if you have a strong relationship with your daughter. So the more you avoid it, the better. Uh, but I think as parents, you do have to have that strong relationship, have those consistent conversations with your kids from a young age, right? Yeah. So, you know, like the typical thing, like, you know, I, I catch myself doing it, but it's funny, like my daughter, she's very good at like certain like hand things, like, cause like my son is very good at them. She copies him, right? Like, like building blocks and stuff like that. She's almost like gone better at him at his age. Uh, but then like, she loves putting on dresses and she loves doing that kind of stuff, which not not wrong with that, but you want to always be careful in terms of the language that you're using. Like Khoder is saying, when it comes to your religion and praying, you want to give it a positive that there's not a burden on you. You do it because you love to do it. But the same thing for them. You don't also want to reinforce common negative things when it comes to body image and beauty and stuff like that. Oh, you're so pretty in those earrings and stuff like that, right? right like, okay. There has to be some validation. And I don't know the exact answer to this, like what language you should and shouldn't be using. But you want to be careful what language and how you validate your daughter. Are you, if you're validating her image, are you validating when she does really good on her exams, on her school, or she memorizes Quran, all that kind of stuff? You need to be making sure you're validating her on her accomplishments and not just her looks and her beauty, right? And Absolutely. That's super important. And I think goes back one, one million percent agree with what Anas is saying. And I, I also feel that the the beliefs of the parents get transmitted to the children as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they pick up on these things, bro. Like if your life goal is to get a, a Lambo, then you better believe that your son is going to think that that's pretty important as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Like whatever you really and, and that's difficult for us because we kind of feel like, OK, I'm broken. I'm messed up. I have flaws, but I want my kids to be perfect. But it's like you, you really do need to work on your own perception because that gets transmitted very subtly. And kids are very smart at picking up on these things from a very young age, bro. Like growing up, my dream was to buy my dad a 1957 Ford Thunderbird because that's all he spoke about. It was like his favorite car. Yeah. And my goal was like, Baba, one day I'm going to be rich. I'm going to buy you this car. And we'd be like, someone asked me, like, what's your favorite car? I'd be like, it's a 1974 Thunderbird. And they'd be like, you're such a weirdo. Like, you should have just said Porsche, you know? So the kids will listen to what their parents say or see what they like, and they're going to internalize a lot of that. So if Anas is saying, and I, I absolutely love what he's saying about the telling his daughter, like, oh, you're so pretty in those earrings, for example, right? Like, you need to be careful about what you actually believe, and it's going to come out, right? So if you really do believe that your, your daughter, um, you know, needs to find validation in her own beauty, regardless of all the, the bling and the whatever, and that's something that's important to you, then make sure you tell her that, right? Or make sure you, you express that, but you have to believe it. Otherwise, it's going to yeah, feel for, for a lot of these things we're discussing, same. you went to Kuwait uh, recently. Who are you teaching? What, what, what yeah. age kids? Uh, middle school. I was teaching grade boys? 7 and 8. Or both? Uh, boys, yeah. And my wife was teaching a mix of boys and girls kindergarten. Okay, so um, in terms of moving overseas and a lot of people thinking that's going to be the solution for a lot of the issues that I'm seeing in my kids, you know, do you think no, that's reasonable not. or not? Is it at least a solution for some people or no? Not at all. 
look for the kids thing i don't well look look honestly the cool thing about a place like kuwait is that every single kid there knows how to speak arabic very well and um they they pretty much know the basics of their religion very well mm-hmm. beyond that bro it, like they're exposed to the exact same social media like i was in a grade four class and i forgot exactly what happened but it was something like okay guys take your books to page 69 and all the kids are like <laughs> You know, grade four in Kuwait. Wait, what's the joke? You know, okay. 69 is a funny number for them. Great, great, grade four, grade four, 10 years old in Kuwait. Bro, they're exposed to the exact same stuff people here are exposed so, to, you know. So wh- one thing just to add to the thing about like how we communicate to our kids and being, uh, you know, always having a positive, like, especially when it comes to our practice of religion and not as a burden. The other side that I, I, I really try to do with my kids is when I do fall short, I, I, I tell them like, Hey, like Bob had a difficult time getting up for Fajr or like, Hey, sometimes I don't feel like praying. Like, it's not like I don't feel like praying, but like it is a burden sometimes. Right. And like, cause they're going to feel those feelings where like, they might not want to do something, but just because today Baba doesn't feel like praying, I have to get up and do it. Right. So like, I, I try to do that as well. So they understand that like, they don't put me on this crazy pedestal that I'm like this thing that like gotcha. when I fall flat, which I will many times, that they know that hey, they could humanize me, that I'm like, hey, I'm going to make mistakes just like you will, and you're going to also make mistakes. But it's like, how do we get back up again, mm-hmm. right? I, lo- I, I always love that, uh, the, the famous statement of uh, Alfred Pennyworth in Batman Begins. He asked Bruce, he's like, Bruce, you know, when he falls down the ball and he picks him up, he's like, you know, Bruce, why do we fall so we can get back up again, right? But like, that's the whole idea is that when, when we do fail at different things, like, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us so many, and will constantly give us opportunities to get back up. You just have to get back up. Yeah, Khudr, um, right. So you mentioned, yeah, you, you, you almost insinuated the fact that piety and religion and prayer and um, some of these kids and their upbringing, it's almost this one big bucket, you know, it's all tied in together. And society has done this thing where it is tied in together, but then the hijab is almost completely separate where there's this whole trend of, you know, people taking it off or people finding it harder, which is reasonably, it's, it's, it's understandable that it is harder. What is your take on um, having those discussions with your daughter, not in terms of prayer, like we were just discussing, but more in terms of the hijab. Like what's your, yeah, what's your take on that? When is it appropriate to, to do you, should you even discuss it? Or do you leave that to the mom? Like how do you, how do you approach that? I think that the, the idea of not wanting to wear hijab is, uh, it's, it's not even about the hijab. I think it's about, so, okay, so there's this one guy in high school whose sister was wearing hijab only at school but not when she would leave school because it was Muslim school. And he told me, uh, he was one of my students and she was a student of mine as well. And he's like, I, I, how do I convince my sister to wear hijab? And I got so mad at him because I followed him on Facebook. And on his Facebook, he had posted this picture of a, you know, an adult film star, like a porn star on his Facebook, which was kind of clothed, kind of. And uh, all his friends from the Muslim school were commenting like, oh, wow, is that your girlfriend? Cool. A bunch of idiots, right? And his sister obviously has access to this and she sees this. And I'm like, bro, you and your friends are giving a very clear message to your sister and every other girl that this is what a man values. And if a girl is going to want to attract a man or please a man or be seem interesting to a man, which is what a lot of teen girls think because that's the age where these thoughts are important to them, then she gets a very clear message that this is what men are looking for. And then you're telling her wear hijab. It's so incoherent and it's so it's it's so fake. It's so it's such a lie. You you don't actually care about the hijab. You don't actually care about what the hijab means in Islam. 
Um, and that comes off very, very clearly to your sister. So I think the impression that we give our daughters about what beauty is and what makes her valuable is so important. Because if a girl feels like I'm only valuable if I'm beautiful, um, then yeah, hijab seems like it's preventing her from being valuable. Uh, so I think the relationship with the parents and making them understand that your beauty is not how sexy you look. Uh, and I don't know how young that starts, but I like what Anas is doing, man. Like from now, tell like, you know, be, making them understand that, no, they are beautiful. They are valuable. There are other things that are making them important besides that. So that when they get to that age, bro, like oh, Disney is garbage, bro. Like a oh, sleeping beauty. What do we know about her? She's literally asleep. She's literally asleep. But the prince is willing to kill himself for a dragon just to marry her because she's a sleeping beauty. He doesn't know anything about her character. Bro. She's literally asleep. It's all about how she sleeps, man. You have no idea. Yo, she's you literally, know. bro, she's literally asleep. Like borderline necrophilia. The yeah, girl she's is probably not doing Qiyam, bro. Yeah, bro. Come what? on, man. Like benefit of the doubt, bro. bro. <laughs> the girl might be dead, but it's like she's sleeping beauty. She's a beauty. She's a beauty. So everyone wants her. No, it's the way she and girls, inhales and exhales, girl, man. You have no girls, idea. Girls grow up. Girls grow up watching this stuff. And they're like, wow, if I want my Prince Charming, I got to be beautiful. Hijab is going to make me ugly. And that's, again, that's where, like, uh, the big part of this is that relationship between the father and daughter. Because that's where she's really going to learn this, right? right? Her value does not come from, you know, her beauty and her looks, but comes much beyond that, right? What about and, peer like, pressure, guys? Build that up. So, like, there is the concept between, you know, your parents what you consume as well on the media side of things. But what about within your own circles? When, let's say, for example, a, someone who's, once again, young, they're attending school, they're surrounded by specific individuals for hours in a day, right? And we know the idea behind, like, it's, it's, it's almost like basic math, right? You give, if you yourself as a parent have six hours in a day where you can give to your kids, and then this other person has an eight-hour they have two extra hours over you to have that effect where Shaitan can kind of, you know, kind of go through them in a way and work work his magic on them in that sense. Um, so what do you do in that case as a parent? Is it about you vetting the friends that they hang out with? Is it about you even asking, getting involved to that extent? You had that friend come over where you can even have, let's say, an impact on them where maybe his parents don't, don't have or her parents don't have that effect on them. Like, what about that whole aspect of things, the peer pressure aspect of things? I think, like Anna said, du'a is so important, uh, and it's the number one thing. We, I think, we we uh, trivialize it a lot, um, and ultimate acceptance of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala's will that we don't guide who we love, but He guides who He wills. And like prophets, the children's of prophets were sometimes misguided or or, or astray, um, and you know, we could be the best father ever. But I think it's also about utilizing those six hours, Noor. Like you're saying, you have six hours with your kids and the teacher has eight. How many of us actually maximize those six hours or utilize them to their full potential? Unfortunately, we don't, bro. We come home, we're tired, and we're like, yo, leave me alone. I just had a whole day of work. I don't want to spend time with you or teach you or be wise with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sad. It, it's difficult, and that's the thing that I'm worried about. It's like, you know, no matter how much of a job you can also be doing as a parent, and, and to your point, this is why dua is important, is that there is this this element of kind of unknown or where you don't really have full control. And this is a lesson for sure from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who's like teaching us that at the end of the day, no matter what, when all, you know, <laughs> push goes to shove, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in control and we're not, right? And you can be the best of prophets, you can be the best of human beings, the best emulator in that sense. 
but you know you can still have a son or a daughter that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts in your life to kind of test you um, who might not necessarily be on you know the straight path and and a lot of times it might not even come from your efforts as a parent but it can com come from environmental factors you know like the society as a whole or friends or whatever the case may be like the the story of Nuh alayhi salam right it's it's kind of like that where his own son didn't want to you know he guidance and a lot of the times it was probably because of the society that he was around and maybe the society's pressure was just too strong for him or kept pushing him away um so anyways you, you guys' thoughts on that so like beyond the realm of you being a parent should a parent also get involved when it comes to a, a you know a young person's circles i know look for myself i can speak from experience my dad was pretty involved with my friends in the sense that he would vet them and there was a time where you know if we were eating my, my parent like my father specifically he would sit at the table and my friends would usually sit around him and you know he would get to know them and so on and so forth and like people will get to know my dad as well and it kind of helped a little bit kind of regulate who we who, who we hung out with who we didn't hang out with and so on and so forth not that not to say that my dad was like literally you can't hang out with this dude but if someone was cool with my dad and my dad was cool with that person it kind of made us more comfortable with that person as a friend you guys get what i'm trying to say that's, that's interesting that your your dad did that i think that, that's like super important right like as a i think as a parent it's your responsibility to know your kids friends whether it's inviting them over, spending time, again, spending time, right? Whether it's spending time with your own kids or your kids' friends, it makes such a huge difference. Um, it, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy if you think about, you know, that that type of model uh, when it comes to our, our kids' friends. But I don't think you could force friends, right? So I think, like, your dad's method, I forget, I'm not going to force you to become friends with them. I'm going to get to know your friends because now I know them too. So I could tell you now, like, when I say something about your friend that he does this, Maybe I'm not telling you, hey, don't hang out with them, but hey, be careful about that because your friend is like X, Y, Z. You could at least give your kid advice. And it's validated because you know him, he knows him. So it's not just coming out of nowhere where you're, your parents like, oh, that kid, like he looks like he's, a, he, he's troubled. Don't hang out with him. Like you're not going to have any impact on your kid that way, right? Uh, the other thing that, that I would take it, that I would say is like we know the saying, you know, it takes a village to raise a kid. Now, not everybody has that opportunity or has that blessing, I would say, of maybe having family close by or friends, but doing that to the best of your ability, right? So if you can be close to family that you trust and that you know that will take, they'll help along that way because it does take a village. It's very hard in this day and age as a parent just to do all that on your own, right? To really be that constant influence for your kids. So having grandparents or your siblings or their uncles or aunts that you know that you trust, you trust their demons, stuff like that. If you don't necessarily have that, try to surround yourself around friends that have that that you could be around on a regular basis because your kid is also going to pick up a, a, with, with the people that you hang around with, right? Mm -hmm. And then trying to form those bonds. So I think that as a father or mother is also very important. So like for some people that's easy and it comes naturally to, to make friends and stuff like that. For some people it doesn't. So you have to make an extra effort to go and, and form those. Uh, and because I, it's hard. I, I, I agree. And I think that if you want to make sure that your kid is spending eight hours with someone who's not harming him, you got to also watch out who you're putting your where you're putting your kids and that goes back to the Muslim school thing right like it doesn't need to be a muslim school but a public school even a public school like go to those pta meetings bro like meet your kids teacher like, get involved find out who they're with you know let, just to use an extreme example an extreme example if if my kids you know first grade teacher is hitler you know what is hitler teaching him for eight hours a day and i'm not saying that you're putting it's, it's an extreme example but it's to drive the point home right do that to a much lesser degree to whatever degree this person you disagree with their morals how much time are they spending with them? And what are they imparting to your kid in that time? And teachers will always impart their morals on children. I was giving dawah all the time yeah. at John <laughs> All the time. Like, 
in any way that I can and get away with it, I would. I had this whole thing on like not sleeping together before marriage or why dating is stupid to a bunch of Christian kids. And their response was that their parents didn't care and the school didn't care, but I'm still giving dawah, bro, as best I can. Sure. No, that's solid. All right, so let's switch gears really quickly. Now, um, do you guys feel like, because we're talking about a lot of this stuff, there was this recent study that showed, I think it was about 70% or something like that of kids want to be YouTubers. Um, do you guys feel like the education system is adapting to this like changing narrative, this changing world, this changing perception uh, of what old jobs used to be like and what, you know, uh, careers used to be like and what careers are now or where their interests lie, at least with the youth? I, I, want, I actually wanted Abdullah so, yeah, to talk so... about this because he had a really great presentation at the masjid about um, how the, the promise that you're told by the education system is not all that and how sometimes just doing your own thing is the better route. Um, I think that a lot of young people are starting to see that and starting to see the, 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 the lesser value of what a degree means. You think it's a good thing? I think it's a reality that schools need to adapt to when they're not. Like um, at the schools you teach, so the Islamic school you teach, are you guys teaching them how to code or create websites? Like how are you guys, um, yeah, basically, are you guys teaching them any different than what we were being taught 15 years ago? So... For example, Sohail, a friend of ours, was telling me that his daughter at a public school is now being taught. There's a new class called adulting and uh, they're being taught, for example, like here's what a credit card is. And here's what happens when you only pay the minimum payment on a credit card. Here's the debt you incur. Here's what compounded interest means. Here's what it means to say that the things you buy aren't actually free and you're just delaying the payment of your own money for these things that you're putting on your credit card. So these kinds of things I think are important. Um, in the Muslim school where I teach, they do have financial education, which is not at that level yet. Uh, Brother Luqman wants to start something called Genjini with us where he teaches them how to code in robotics and stuff, but it's not there yet. And I think part of the reason why we're probably a little bit further behind is again, because we're hiring teachers who got their degree 40 years ago from Algeria or Lebanon or anywhere. And so they, they're, they're not there. We don't have some young guy who just graduated from, from uni uh, because we, we can't pay him well enough. So I, at our school, it's not representative. Yeah. Uh, inshallah, it's changing. It's changing more and more, inshallah. So Luqman, inshallah, will be coming to JMC and doing it as like an after-school thing. So that's cool. Uh, but to answer your question, uh, yeah, we, we got a long way to go, bro. Anas, do you know uh, how schools are so, right now? Like the secular schools? So if you like, look at elementary school, it's, it's a different story. I think all kids should go through elementary school and go through schooling, even in high school. The problem that I'm seeing, and I'm, I'm seeing it here, even at the youth center, is kids are coming and like literally, like again, we're creating a co-working space, so some of these kids come and work out of here and stuff. And most of them are college, some university level, and I would say like ninety percent of them are like thinking of dropping out or dropping out. And I'm like, what's going on here? And like, look, I come from an entrepreneurial background. I own my own business and stuff like that. I am 50-50 about the, um, you know, the benefits uh, of school or university or higher education. In general, I will still promote it 90% uh, of the time. I would say the use case for people to go in there and do their own thing is a small use case. Because mm -hmm. we know that 9 out of 10 businesses fail starting up, right? And most people don't have the aptitude, the drive to be able to build their own business. A lot of people can, but it's not for everybody. And I would say it's not for the majority. Uh, with that being said... Like what I was noticing with a lot of these kids is less about them wanting to go. Like a lot of them just have this thing. I want to go drive a Lambo and stuff like that. So I just want to make, make a, bit, a bunch of money. So I'm trying to reframe that. I'm like, don't just start a business because you want to make a bunch of money. Think about the impact you have. Like if I start a business 
it's not just about me. I can employ people. I can give people a, a livelihood, which is which is which is a very noble thing to do. The other side of that that I would say is that for a lot of them, they just like don't want to put in the effort for school, mm-hmm. right? They just they just like ah, oh, it's too hard. I don't have any interest, and they just drop out because they don't want to put the effort, right? It's like oh, the easier path is like I could now go start a marketing agency, and it's just like you know I can make a couple of bucks. And it's, it's enough to enough to survive it and maybe I can make make that into a living right so like I definitely don't want to promote that type of behavior and mentality of just like giving up because like hey it's too hard I don't have the 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 mental aptitude or fortitude to just like see this thing through because that's also creating other problems down the line right now should you do this school for the for the sake of doing school I would say for some people no but for some people maybe yes and this, this is a hard question to answer just as a universal give you a yes or no uh, but I would say more so than not, most of these kids should be going through school uh, in some form or another. The problem comes is like they have zero idea of going out of high school. Not all, but a lot of kids, and especially you're seeing this more so in males and females, of like what direction to go in. They finish high school, it's like, okay, I'm going into college. They have no idea what they want to do from a university perspective or beyond that, right? So yes, schools might need to adapt. And schools are adapting, by the way. So you, you'll see this maybe less so at the college level, but especially at the university level, Programs are adapting. Are they adapting as fast as they should be? No, but they are changing. I have seen that. Anis, do you think it's because of a lack of guidance or do you think it's because of, once again, this overwhelming consumption of people who don't actually have, who don't actually have real jobs in the social, in the social space? What I mean by real job, by the way, like <laughs> I'm not uh, anti like, you know, dropping out of school and doing your own thing and, you know, to your success if you can make that happen mashallah that's amazing and i encourage people to do that in fact if they're passionate about something and they're serious about it and they can do it without necessarily having to go to school like by all means you know no no need necessarily but what i'm trying to say by real jobs is like the old school careers like being an engineer being a doctor being a this being a that these were the jobs that when we were younger they were the ones that were kind of being spearheaded by our parents and so on and so forth right being a lawyer being a this being a that Nowadays, if you're consuming social media, it's all about the influencer. It's all about the entrepreneur. And it's zero about being an engineer and like, you know, a day in the life of an engineer. I wake up in the morning, get ready with me, you know, routine or any of that stuff. Like none of that stuff exists in that kind of world or very little of it does. While as much more of it is available as the entrepreneur slash influencer. Do you think it's because of that or do you think it's because of just a lack of guidance from schools or parents and what you know, and interest, and uh, and and kind of getting to know what the what the kids' interest is, and pushing that along forward. So, like again, from I guess from a social media influencer perspective, I think like this is again my anecdotal opinion is that like their success is very visual. You see it, right? So, like following the path of a doctor, all these other there's a million different pressures. There doesn't have to be doctor, lawyer, engineer. There's so many different other paths to go. Is that like it's right in your face, right? Like, hey, just put in like just consistently make content and make it funny. And now you could drive a Lamb or you could have this house that I have and stuff like that. So not all influencers are showing that, but like, you see that, right? Even if they're not trying to push it in your face, you see kind of like the the cool life that they have, right? They get to travel, they get to do all these things, right? So like it's just visually in their face. So like who wouldn't want to go and try to pursue that? But we know that even when it comes to YouTube, like literally it's like a 99% failure rate, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it, it's so difficult to make it on these on these social platforms. So I think that education has to be upfront. Uh, showing value in like so many other different types of professions, um, you know, mentoring, you know, like mentoring is a big uh, part of this. 
uh, again, I think the, the, the cultures that we come back, there's a lot of value given on very specific professions like medicine, engineering and stuff like that going beyond that. Cause there's a lot that, you know, a lot of very good professions out there. Right. And they don't have to be a doctor, engineer, or lawyer, right. There's a lot of things that kids could do. And as a parent, again, trying to find where, you know, where your kids excel at, you know, there's this thing, this, this idea, find something you love to do. And, you know, you'll never work a day in your life. I like to take it from a different perspective is like find something that you're really good at and hone that skill, right? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times to make what you love to do into an actual profession is very difficult, right? But finding something that you're good at is relatively easy and then just keep on honing that skill and you'll learn to love it over time because you get really good at it, right? So like as a parent, identifying what your kids are good at and then pushing them in that direction as opposed to like, hey, you need to become a doctor engineer because these are prestigious careers, right? Um, so I think that's, that's one thing is, is the mentorship and like identifying that in, yeah. in kids. Um, but yeah, just giving them the realities, like literally, I don't know what the stats are, but I would assume it's like 99 out of a hundred people that start a YouTube channel or any type of try to become a social media influencer fail. And I probably, it's probably even less. Like, when when less you guys talk that. to these kids, what's the, uh, the split there between like, you know, how many people want to pursue this stuff or how many people want to start their own business? How many people want to be athletes? How many people want to pursue engineering? Blah, blah. Like, do you have a, a general sense for I don't know, 50% don't want to do school, 50% do like. Like, look, my my uh, data is very anecdotal. It's just the few people that I spoke to, I haven't done any type of thorough conversations around this or tried to acquire any data. But the ones that I have come across that are like maybe in their very, in their late teens, getting into their 20s, a lot of them is just, a like out of all the kids, and I would say like this is about like 15, 20, 20 guys that, I, that I've spoken to so far, I would say two of them are probably cut out to be entrepreneurs. From my from my perspective, I these are twenty that are um, how old? <coughs> I would say between the ages of like eighteen to twenty three. So you have twenty <coughs> guys who want to be entrepreneurs, and then only two are cut out. Or I'm asking more so from the perspective of yeah, from anecdotal experience, these twenty, how many of them want to pursue school, and how many of them say no, no, I want to do the entrepreneur thing. So I'm talking about these are all people that are trying to pursue the entrepreneurial because that's what right. I'm coming across right now in the co-working space. A lot of these younger guys that are trying to do that. <clears throat> I, I could be totally wrong, but this is like who, which one of them is showing that type of grit, that ability to co go and push? <coughs> Excuse me. There, it's only a handful. The other ones like, look, you know, what I think about myself when I was in 1920, I would say a lot of them are a lot more advanced than me. And that's just because how the space has grown a lot more <clears throat> where it's become... My voice is like dying here. No worries, take time. You're... <laughs> and then, yeah, you're fine. You just yeah, put it good. further away. <laughs> it's fine, Abu. It's gonna be fine. It's, it's I think the way Riverside does it. Interesting. Okay. Right now, yeah. Right. So, uh, sorry. So, so going back to that is like again these like this is my assessment of it, you know, and this is like my thought and my definition of what it takes to be an entrepreneur and stuff like that. Most these kids, inshallah, I, I pray that they'll all do very well, right? Mm -hmm. There's only like, they're all trying to drop, they're all like, hey, I need to drop out of school because I need to focus on this. My thing is, no, you don't have any other obligations. Do your school and do this because you have nothing else to do, right? You don't have a family, you don't have any other obligations. You live at home, do both. Don't, don't drop out. Because to me, that proves that you have that capability of fighting through it. Whereas opposed to, I'm just going to drop something that's a little bit hard right now in school because I just want to focus on making money. And I would say, again, do, I, I really try to avoid giving the advice to kids that drop out of school. There's like only two kids that I would think about doing it because I saw that potential. I saw like, hey, school is really not for them yeah. and they're going to go far when it comes to their, their capabilities in business or so, whatever it is, right? But for the most of them, I'm like, no, don't, 
Yeah, I guess it depends, so, right? Like there are certain degrees that you don't necessarily need to go to school for. I mean, like the the regular school, I mean, university degree necessarily. Like, for example, if you're trying to pick up, I don't know, uh, how to code, for example, you don't necessarily need to attend university. Like you could do it via trade, for example, in CJEP or you could even pick it up online. Yeah, as like as I would have. say there's a few professions like that. Like yeah. coding might be one of them. Yeah. One thing that people don't give it enough, uh, I guess, weight to is the network that you build. When you go to school, you interact with so many different people, right? And right. like as much as maybe like your degree didn't provide that much value to you, it opened up a huge network for you, which you don't realize is going to come in handy. That's very true. Like I could probably go reach out to any of the alumni from my school. And just the fact that we went to the same school, there's some connection there. So like they might be willing to help me out because we just went to the same school and I have no idea who they are. But on top of that, the people that I actually knew and that I actually interacted with met, like, oh yeah, I remember you. We went to this, we we're in this program together. Hey, like, you know, you see them at a company or something like that. It's someone that you can network with now. Right? And there's, there's a lot of power in that. I agree. And maybe that's what school needs to be, right? It needs to be more of a platform, at least on that end, when we're talking about university or CJEP, it should be with the idea, maybe like network a little bit more, get involved with some of those clubs as well from a professional perspective so, to drive that. So two, two, two things that I've noticed in the secondary five students at JMC, um, because they're at an age now where they have to apply for CJEP. And, uh, what, is, CJEP what is secondary five? How secondary old? five is uh, grade 11. It's like just before college. Grade 11. Um, and they have to apply so like for 16, college. Right? Yes, uh, 17. Most of them are 17. 16. 17. One, one of them is turning 18 soon, so around that age. And uh, March 1st, so in less than a month, is the deadline to apply for college. So they have to pick a program. They have to make sure their grades are on point and everything. And the recurring thing I keep hearing from them is, I don't know what I want to do. Uh, whatever I end up doing, the salary is going to be trash. Uh, I want to get married young, so I need to start working. And uh, all the rich people in the world don't use their degrees. So there's this like stigma around degrees now. And one big thing that a lot of the students have been telling me, and this is a lot of guys tell me that they either sell drugs or they know people who sell drugs or they have sold drugs in the past mm -hmm. and not anymore, but they know guys who sell drugs. It's that they are, um, they are uh, unimpressed with salaries and in comparison with how much the world costs. And so they're like, if I ever want to be able to afford a house, I can't go to school because I'm going to go to school, spend 20 G's on education and then get 40 K a year that like half is going to go into taxes. And then eventually I want to buy a house and I'm going to have to put a down payment because houses now cost a million dollars and I'm going to be renting forever. And I'm, they're very unimpressed with salaries and in their head, it's like, it's, it's sink or swim. It's like, I'm either going to get a salary and never own a house or I'm going to be this crazy entrepreneur that's going to make a lot of money uh, and be smarter than everyone and more hardworking and just hustle. And then I'm going to make it big in my business or my company or my drug trade or whatever and be able to have a good life. Is this mainly men or is it women also? The men think like this and the girls have told me that they don't see themselves uh, making a lot of money anyway. And so their best bet is just to get married. Become a housewife. Oh, yeah. A lot of girls think like that. Like you, you now there's, there's a lot of stats showing that like when it comes to uh, success in the education system is skewing a lot more towards female. Uh, even when coming into qualification to the job market is starting to not necessarily skewing more male, but these the stats are changing quite a bit. Yeah. And there's an interesting book I would tell you guys to read. It's called Boys Adrift. 
it's it's about 15 year old book but he talks about the idea of like this phenomenon of how young boys and you know, be, becoming men are just very drifting don't have any purpose in, in life or any drive to do anything right i don't know whether if you're seeing this a lot with young teenagers either they have that thing like hey i need to make a bunch of money i need to go start my thing or the other opposite of that of just like apathy and like yeah look like, i mean I don't really just, care. I don't know if you let, let me give you like like just like a case example so brother came to see me and he's like hey um i i want to start a business and I go, cool. Why? Like, what's your, what's your, what's your, what, what pushed you to want to do this? And he's like, well, I realized that if I'm going to be working for 60 K a year and the government's going to take 20 of that and I have 40 left and I'm going to pay rent and my rent is going to be 2 K a month. That's 24 K. I'm never, and he's a Muslim kid. So I'm never going to have enough to get a halal mortgage because halal mortgages are like 50% of what the, the value of the house. Uh, which is true in some companies, not true in others, whatever. This is what the kid's telling me. The kid is telling me mm-hmm. that if I want to go through a Cortoba, it's like 50% down payment, and there's no way I'm able to save up 50% of half a million ever in my life. So I'm yeah. giving up on that, and I'm deciding that instead of making 60K, I'm going to hustle, start a business, and that business is going to make 200K a year, and then with that money, I can finally afford to, buy, to be a homeowner. And I didn't know what to tell him, because as a teacher... I'm living that, right? Like, uh, alhamdulillah, look, I have different sources of income, right? So alhamdulillah, I have different projects going on. I have different things that I'm doing and it's getting me some kind of money, right? But I also am in a situation where I'm like, if I want to go through the halal mortgage route or the Islamic mortgage route or the Islamic banking route, um, it is unrealistic that with the current uh, stream of money that I'm getting, I will be able to own a home. And so you get all this pressure from Muslims as well and non-Muslims being like, look, just get a you know normal mortgage, pay like 5% down and save up for whatever, move into a smaller apartment, pay 700 bucks a month for rent so that you can save 1300 a month. And then after you know a year, you have like 14K, give that, get a small apartment that you can buy on a mortgage, whatever, like start doing that. But a lot of these Muslim kids, they're, they're not comfortable with that. And so their mindset is like, look, I'm young. I want to get married. I want to do everything Islamically. I want to get the halal mortgage. I want to do all these things. And a normal salary job will never give that to me. So I, I get a lot of that. I get a lot of that personally. Very interesting. Very interesting. So they're so just tell them to go take a mortgage, bro. <laughs> someone's going to shoot well, I know, like, I know, I, I know you have, like, there's a different wave now coming, right? Just because of that big, like num- number one, there's no, um, what do you call obligation for anybody to own a home? Right? Obviously, that's like a big thing. It's societal pressure. Societal pressure. I think it's societal pressure. But even if you think historically, the idea of owning your own home in places like this has been throughout human history, right? Like the like owning your your, your shelter is something that you would generally own, right? Have some level of agency on as opposed definitely. to having to rent your whole life yeah. right so like i don't think it's a new phenomenon the the fact that it's like super unaffordable is definitely a, a lot more of a newer phenomenon and that's with like just interest does that right like if you think about 100 years ago what that that that, that interest that has been lo- lended out for so many uh, for, for so many hundreds of years and now that's starting to only benefit the rich and then everybody at your average mediocre level yeah. or under that is the ones that are uh paying the price for that anyways that's that's a whole separate conversation. Uh, I don't know where we started off on this question, the, uh, but the idea the kids, of the kids who kids, don't want degrees, kids don't want degrees, they want to open yeah. up. The kids that don't want degrees, sell, sell like, There's a lot of opportunity, man. Like this is so. I remember I was talking to a brother, and he's like, a lot of kids don't actually understand. There's a lot of career paths that you could make, like 
80 to 100k within like two to three years i agree i agree right the, the problem is and, a lack of guidance though right don't you feel like yeah 100 yeah, so a lot of it is lack, lack of guidance right uh like i remember i was so depressed so i i graduated with a microbiology degree my my initial goal was to go into medicine mm -hmm. and i remember graduating and this is like again this has been like over 10 years now and the starting salary for somebody coming with a university degree was like Thirteen dollars an hour, so it's twenty six thousand dollars salary, which <laughs> That's like it was like a two bucks above minimum wage back yeah, then, or something yeah. like that, right? Which was like absolutely depressing. But like, I only learned later on that you don't go into microbiology unless you're planning to do your master's and PhD and get into research, or else yes, you're just going to work a terrible lot, yeah. right? Uh, but yeah, like a lot of I, I get where these kids are coming from. I I was not thinking like that at sixteen, seventeen years old, where I was thinking about like, oh, we make this much, and this how much rent is going to cost. So like, alhamdulillah for them that they're actually thinking that much in advance. Yeah, yeah it's but but a lot of them kind of face a wall when they actually go to get married. And I, for example, I'm helping out more than one brother. There, there's, I can think right now of two specific brothers that this is actually happening to right now, where they came to see me and they're like, help me get married. And every single uh, potential spouse that I have introduced them to, and they kind of got all on the same page about things, when it came to the father or when it came to the family or when the question of degrees came up, the brother, who is, by the way, mashallah, very financially stable, drives a really nice car, has a lot of money in the bank, has a great job, doesn't have a degree, and the parents are like, no, because you don't have a degree. And it's frustrating for them because it's like, I specifically didn't get a degree so that I could get married young and now yeah. they want the degrees. This catch twenty two. But yeah. I don't know if it's a parent thing. I don't know if it's an older generation thing. It might be. But I can think of in my own personal life, just in the last few weeks, two times that it's happened. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It's kind of tell them to come see me. I'll give them a degree. Thick. If that's a real offer, <laughs> print, yo, they're print gonna be paper. So <laughs> Signed by Edis. <laughs> no, but it's but, interesting yeah, because. Like, look, even myself, right? Myself, Abdullah, I mean, we have different stories like that. Like, I remember both of us were in electric engineering and we look at ourselves at like the end of one semester. And we're like, yo, what are we doing here? Like, what is this? Like, what are we spending our life in? And, uh, you know, for different reasons, right? Abdullah actually did end up actually finishing his engineering degree, although it wasn't mechanical. Um, and then, you know, a few years later, he's working. And then, you know, Abdullah, I mean, you can probably speak to this yourself, but you go, hey, you know what? What am I doing in this? Let me switch gears. Let me uh you know actually dive into the world of business itself and you know become an entrepreneur and do your own thing so it is a real thing that kids are facing unfortunately i just wonder if it's because the school system is not doing enough of a job opening up these paths and opening up people's eyes to these paths uh or if it's the parents job or it's the community's job overall or if it's really just because of uh you know social pressure like i said with social media overall and to your point ns where you were saying a lot of this stuff is you see it, you know, the success is immediate, right? There's that like instant gratification almost that, you know, it looks, you become Well, just to speak on that point, instant gratification, right? For a lot of these kids, they want the results and they want it fast. Yes. They're yes. not willing to put in the work for a, a good amount of time. Like even if you take Abdullah's example, he went, he finished his university, he got into a job. And then over time he built that. He's like, okay, no, that's not for me. And he found another path over time, right? When you even think about in the entrepreneurial space, most successful entrepreneurs are above 40. Why? They've worked for a long time. They've built a network. So when they actually go start something, they have people that they know that they can sell to. It is like 10 times more difficult to start a business when you're 19. So if you're able to do it and you do it, alhamdulillah, Allah mubarak, right? Like you, you have a special skill. It's very difficult to do but that. Most, age, but right? most, social and I think the younger... most social media sensations are 19, which is why the 19-year-olds aren't looking to be entrepreneurs. They're looking to be social problem, media personalities. Right? 
Yeah, but like you, you tell me. Uh, you probably know the stat better, and you're probably just going to go Google it. How many? What's the success rate of influencers? Right? It's probably like 999 over a thousand. Probably worse. Probably worse right? than that. Probably worse, right? So like that reality has to set in. That's purely on the influencer side. But just going back to the conversation about university and stuff like that. This generation, and like we're somewhat part of it, is that like we don't want to put in that heart. Like we want gratification a lot faster. I don't want to wait till I'm 30 to have a good paying job. I want it tomorrow, yeah. right? And like that—that's a big problem because it's even—it's it, it, not good for the heart, right? Because it doesn't—it doesn't build that ability to work on yourself and and get change over time, right? Like it doesn't. Things don't happen. Instantly. Yeah. Look, I mean, best case, look for example, teaching, right? I, I love teaching. I, 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 I understand that with teaching comes a lower salary, but I love it as a job, as a profession. I know that in the best school in Quebec, I'm going to get paid maximum after 20 years of teaching, 100K. That's max salary. After 20 years of teaching, that's what I'm going to get. 100K a year, take off taxes, I'm getting like 65, 65 to 70 after tax in my pocket. Um, that's not enough on a single salary to provide for the home, take care of my wife, take care of my kids, take care of myself, have a comfortable living, and then save up to buy a home. So my reality is that I've kind of come to terms with that. And not everyone is okay with that. No, you're wrong. You could if you like just eat bread for like, if I if I give my daughter one falafel every two days, Then you'll be able to save two grand well, listen, a month, right? Well, that's pretty. Look, that's look, very but generous. It's, but it's, it, but, but no, you make a good point. You make a good point. You make a good point. You make a good point because I, I do talk to some brothers, and they're like, "Bro, you're overspending because you you travel, you know, once every two years." Like people people who do penny pinch do end up making it, but I I don't want that kind of sure. a lifestyle personally. I I want to you know make my wife comfortable with the fact that she doesn't work, and so that comes with having to spend on her a little bit. Um, I want my children to feel that they have a comfortable life that comes with spending on them a little bit. That's a personal choice. Right. But look, I'm cool with that. I'm cool with that. I'm, I've, I've come to that, you know, uh, understanding. If I can do Hajj in 10 years, I'm happy. Hajj is like 40K for my wife and me. So, like, that's my goal right now. It's not owning a home. It's like saving up for Hajj in 10 years, inshallah. But, like, that's I'm cool with that. But not everyone is cool with that. So, and society doesn't want you to be cool with that. I just want to add one thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so if we're looking at these 18 to 20 year olds that Anas is referring to. So I went to this co-working space for, I don't know, maybe a month or two months. This is my assessment of things. All right. Um, I fully agree with Anas in that there are two out of 20. So a 10% success rate. I actually would say it's lower. And I think the number one problem, and I hope if anybody's listening to this, they take, uh, they take these words seriously. I think the biggest issue is a lot of these guys don't have the discipline and they don't have the track record like we've been saying and they're diving into this into this um into the deep end and they have no idea how to even float or swim at all and you know to be an entrepreneur like there's a lot of hustling and if you see a lot of these guys i'm sure even the 19 year olds they've been hustling for a long time the people who are successful on youtube they've been consistent for a long time before they saw any success and yeah to, 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 to give to illustrate the example, a lot of these guys are showing up at like noon with sleepy faces. So they just woke up or they're leaving at like four. So they literally maybe did two or three hours of work, if that. And then majority of the time they're, they're coming to chill. For me, I see that and I'm like, bro, how could you expect to be rewarded with the things you want by doing that? Like that's just ridiculous expectations of what's very uh, good point. But that's my Yeah, you have to temper your expectation. You have to be realistic, right? Like Like for myself at this point, 
I would love to kind of jump in and start doing some of this, you know, some of the, the more entrepreneurial stuff that I was doing a few years ago, or even being more consistent in socials. But I know that my lifestyle at the moment won't allow for it. If I'm sleeping at like 12 or if I'm sleeping at 11, I shouldn't be surprised and like, you know, almost like this world is crooked and it's it's rigged against us kind of thing uh, when you could actually be taking some practical steps to, to help yourself become more consistent and to, to drive your success. So to your point, Tabu, that's that's a very fantastic and I, I don't know. I, maybe I'm just trying to plug this in. I don't know how relevant it is at this point in the conversation, but I think it's important to mention, especially with um, how we spend our money. And we're talking about Muslims living in the West. Uh, I've noticed a trend that more and more Muslim communities in the West, and you take, you know, Texas, for example, at Qalam, um, and what we're trying to kind of do here in Montreal is that we're learning that, and Nasser is a huge promoter of this, um, you need to start paying for the the the, the, the uh, people resources, not the human resources, but the, but the, the, the actual human resources, the actual 100%. resources in the people that you have and investing in that as opposed to infrastructure. Because you have the most brilliant of minds and this is a reality. Look, we have one guy at the halaqa that, that I, I, uh, who's helping us with the halaqa, and he's doing amazing work, mashallah. And so I made it a point to make sure he gets something of a salary, even if it's like peanuts. Because if not, and he has to pay a cell phone bill or whatever, which is a reality in today's day, I don't want him going to work for some call center. I don't want him to give 20 hours a week to Equinox or 10 hours a week to Equinox. His brain and his iman and his influence and his impact is so much more valuable to me but the reality is he has bills to pay. He's in uni right now. He's doing engineering right now. So he's a busy guy. And if I'm not giving him any money and he has to pay his bills, he's just going to go somewhere else. And we're wasting our talent. We're losing our talent. 100%. And if you uh, sort of uh, use that as a maxim and you kind of kind of blow that up, then what about the really intelligent people who would do so great at just consider uh, giving themselves full time to the Dawa job in Montreal and they're out doing something else because they got to provide? Like, what are we doing to attract them and attract their brain and attract their talents and their charisma and their competence for the community? I think that goes back to to the community leaders and the, the real movers and shakers. They need to start thinking like this and investing in these people. That's, I think, the, on, the only way forward. Perfect. Awesome, guys. Well, that's been fun. Zakim to the two of you guys for coming on. Honestly, this was a really good conversation. I hope we get to do this again, Jalan, in your future. <laughs> Um, any closing remarks, Abud, as we wrap this up? Uh, the only thing is, if you made it this far, thank you very much. Uh, we don't ask you to like, comment, or subscribe. All we ask is that you share the video if you found it helpful. We also have a clips channel we'll be, um, be sharing as well. But if you can just share the videos, that's actually the most helpful thing you guys can do. Yes, and Anas, uh, Abu Jana, anything that you guys want to part? Any last words or things that you guys want to plug? Social. Go ahead. <laughs> I I I, uh, I appreciate you guys doing this work, and uh, I think what we say about you know doing the work and not looking at the results immediately and just believing in the process and being people of process instead of the product. Um, may Allah reward you guys for the work you're doing, and uh, I hope that you uh, realize the importance of this job, whether you see the results immediately or not. All right, guys, then we'll wrap it up. We're going to stop the recording here. Thanks, guys, for following once again. See you guys next time. Sorry. Oops.